Okay, we're going to get started. Uh, could we get a motion on the uh, record plats? Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Other consent items? Country Club Village. Move approval. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Approval of the minutes. Move approval. Second. All, of, all in favor? Aye. Opposed? Aye. Motion carries. Parks Director's Report. Good morning. I'm Mike Riley, Director of the Parks Department. Uh, I have my biweekly report for you, and I thought I would start with the semi-annual presentation to the council that occurred Tuesday. Our chair and uh, Commissioner Wells-Harley were both present, uh, so they got to hear the uh, feedback from the council, but I'll recap it for the benefit of the uh, other board member here today and the uh, general public. Uh, we highlighted uh, several things in our presentation. The first one we started out with was urban parks, the concept of uh, how we activate our existing urban parks and how we're going to make sure that we have high quality and ample open spaces in the uh, urban cores where there's going to be more uh, people and more density. And that seemed to garner an awful lot of enthusiasm with the council, uh, a lot of feedback from uh, members within, I noted at the end of the day that uh, Bethesda Magazine had uh, uh, issued a, a, a release about the excitement that Bethesda was uh, mentioned for needing a high quality urban open spaces. And um, that will remain a priority and area of focus for uh, the Parks Department. Of course, we work closely with the uh, planners and the planning department as each master plan is done. I think you know Brooke Farquhar is our lead planner. She's always at the table, and we're going to be thinking creatively how we make sure that uh, our urban spaces have a high-quality park and open space network, and not just the ones where we're doing master plans, but we're looking at Silver Spring. We're looking uh, at our existing parks. I envision uh, partnerships with the Recreation Department and probably the Regional Service Centers and other public agencies as we brainstorm on how to activate our existing uh, urban parks. Uh, Commissioner Wells-Harley was kind enough to come have a brainstorming session with, uh, with John Nissel and Brooke Farquhar and myself uh, last week. So we're, we've got a charge and we're excited about it. We're very excited about it. So some other things we talked about were our efforts in uh, community outreach and uh, trails, historic and cultural preservation and interpretation, and athletic fields were other topics that uh, did garner um, uh, the interest and enthusiasm of the council uh, as key programs where we have some challenges. <clears throat> uh, following the semi-annual, we did... Uh, the uh, DEER Management Work Group, which is uh, we lead, but is comprised of the State Department of Natural Resources, um, uh, uh, the county's um, uh, county executive's office, the uh, uh, CNO Canal Superintendent, uh, gave a presentation on the efforts to con uh, manage the whitetail deer population, 
again, the interest of the council in this issue is very intense. They hear an awful lot from their constituents about the challenge. Um, and we presented uh, our progress to date. Uh, there has been a lot of progress, but uh, no one believes that the situation is where it needs to be. And there are, uh, the council is challenging the Deer Management Work Group to put forth as uh, aggressive a plan as they can to deal with the situation, but it is very complex. We're very lucky to have uh, Rob Gibbs uh, lead this committee. He is an expert in the matter, and uh, it is, as I said, very, very complex. There's uh, animal rights issues involved. There's always an interest in um, whether um, um, there's alternative methods to the managed hunts and the sharpshooting operations. Uh, and I think the group is um, open-minded to keep considering all alternatives, but at this point, uh, I think the managed hunts, the sharpshooting operations, and then the introduction of, um, of uh, uh, bow hunting is also part of the solution. Uh, next week, uh, I and a lot of uh, the park staff and leadership will be heading down to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, for the National Park and Recreation Conference. It is an excellent conference um, as far as the education sessions. Um, one thing I noted as I was putting this together last night is I looked at the uh, sessions, and there is a session that relates to each one of the bullets I have under the semiannual presentation. So, I mean, these things were not in isolation. Uh, looking at these priorities, this is uh, something that park and rec uh, districts across the country are all hyper-focused on. And then another thing I wanted to note about that conference is the Expo. Most people wouldn't believe the um, uh, economic uh, impact of uh, park and recreation manufacturers and the playground equipment, the uh, pre-engineered restroom buildings. Uh, I mean, this is big money. Uh, these expo halls are just packed full of manufacturers and distributors, and it's a great opportunity for us to see the latest and greatest. One of the things I'm excited about is um, the, the, one of the trends is these outdoor exercise stations, uh, things where people, instead of signing up to Gold's Gym, having to pay a month and go inside a building, just come to one of our parks and do their workout right along the side of the trail while they're out in nature. I think that's um, something we definitely need in our system sooner than later, and I want to see all the different options that are out there. And then, of course, while we're there, we are a gold medal finalist. We'll hopefully come home with another gold. Uh, we, we will uh, text and tweet as soon as we know. Um, and then we also uh, are fairly certain we will uh, get our final um, official announcement that we've been reaccredited re for uh, CAPRA. And the last thing I wanted to point out, other than the uh, typical uh, material that you can peruse at your leisure that's in my report, uh, was that uh, we, our volunteer office uh, um, conducted a lot of uh, park and stream cleanups in September as part of uh, National Public Lands Day and the day to serve. And you can see some stats here. It just was mind-boggling to me when I saw uh, the p number of pounds of trash that are pulled out of our streams. It's kind of sad on one hand that there's that much trash in our streams, but it certainly is great that we get volunteers who care so much about our parks to come out and pull it out and help us clean them up. Um, I did want to say that I will end my week uh, on the uh, 
second to last page tomorrow night at our haunted trains. We have the uh, two alternatives for the the uh, little kids that uh, don't really want the uh, guy jumping out of the woods with the chainsaw. They might want to head to uh, um, Cabin John, and then the uh, scary uh, the older kids who like a little bit of uh, more scare in their train ride should go to uh, Wheaton. So barring any questions, that's my report for this week. Uh, thank you, and I wanted to say thanks for uh, helping make my first semi-annual uh, as stress-free as possible. Everybody did a great job from both the park and planning side, and that um, is just makes my life so much easier. So got a lot of compliments from the council, and of course, none of it had anything to do with me. I spoke for 30 <laughs> seconds at the beginning, and it was all you guys, so thank you. Welcome. I'd just like to echo that. It was excellent presentation from both uh, departments, and I was, uh, it was really gratifying to see that you had honed in specifically on the things that was of most interest to the council, which tells me they were most interest to the citizens, because that's usually what heightens their interest, and you hit right on those, and, and so I think that's, uh, that's intuitive, and I think that was uh, a really good start. So. Real proud. Uh, well, I would ask, say a couple of things. On the, um, just an idea, I saw that about the, um, at those stations outside, you know, it's kind of a yes. step up from the old stations that we used to have on all of our trails at once upon a time, or a few of our trails. But so I, I would just think that would be an interesting um, thing to look at for an urban park. Yes. Because it's not it's not going to take up a whole lot of space, but it's in an area where a lot of people would be, and it might be an interesting experiment to see how that you know that kind of thing would fit within uh, urban park. Because it appears to me that one of the things that when we start to do this, you know, there's a whole culture uh, there's a whole culture associated with play, and different people recreate and play in different manners, and so we can't have a park. Uh, that's a one-size-fits-all, especially in an urban area. We're going to have to look at, um, you know, what is it that, you know, like blacks recreate in some instances different than whites and Hispanics and et cetera. So I think we're going to have to, you know, do some research and have at least something in there that represents the cultural nature of that area. And I, I think it gives us yeah. a good opportunity to take a look at that. Yeah, the I, other thing is on the gold medal. We expect you to bring the gold medal back home, Mike. And, don't come uh, home without a gold medal. Don't come home without a gold medal. <laughs> don't do that. And the, la <laughs> and the last gold medal we won, one of the staff people told me that if we won, they would dance in the middle of, it was Larry Court, for those of you who know how straight Larry Court, in the middle of Kenilworth Avenue at 4 o'clock. And I, they took a picture, and it really did happen. I don't know how they got the traffic started. So maybe you can that you can get a challenge to our church to dance in Georgia Avenue at four. <laughs> you don't want to see me dance. No. It's like Elaine from uh, Seinfeld. Not, not, I already not, know. That would be good. great. Okay, uh, moving along to the uh, sustainability plan. Whenever you're ready, Mr. Nissel.
Uh, for the record, John Issel, Deputy Director of Operations for Montgomery Parks. Uh, the, member of the, C, uh, the members of the Montgomery County Sustainability Committee have formulated the biannual sustainability plan for the Montgomery County Department of Parks and Department of Planning for the implementation over the next two years. Uh, this plan addresses practice 640 sustainability standards, which was adopted in 1976 and amended in November of 2012. The members of the Montgomery County Sustainability Coordinating Committee formulated a work plan which commenced work in April of 2013. Identifying steps required to develop the biannual sustainability plan for the Montgomery County Department of Parks and Department of Planning. The work plan is included in the report provided you last week. The Montgomery County Sustainability Coordinating Committee has coordinated efforts to communicate goals outlined in the plan to staff and the community. The committee, through the efforts of a team of a team of work groups, has assigned the status of ongoing programs that meets the practice requirements and has prepared a number of prioritized recommendations to be implemented in order to comply with the goals outlined in the practice over the next two years. The Montgomery County Sustainability Coordinating Committee serves as the Montgomery County Liaison to the Agency-Wide Sustainability Committee and as the point of contact and clearinghouse for Montgomery County sustainability-related issues. The Coordinating Committee supports and advances environmental performance, economic prosperity, and social equality with a variety of initiatives. The staff assigned to support the Coordinating Committee facilitates the development and implementation of practices, policies, procedures, and plans. The work groups are combined of, of content experts who have direct management and program responsibilities for the designated sustainability plan implementation requirements and tasks. The work groups are responsible for development of, this, of the plan, policies, and procedures. And so I'd like to thank the committee and the more than 30 staff from both the park and planning departments, along with our partners from CQI Associates, for embarking on this effort, which we believe will set the bar for other Montgomery County agencies to move to a more sustainable community. Um, at this time, I'd like to turn the presentation over to Christine McGrew and Ellen Bennett. Thank you. Good morning. For the record, Christine McGrew, Montgomery Planning Management Services Division. Today, we present to you our framework commitment for Practice 640, an operational plan to bring our Montgomery departments and the commission improved new work policies, procedures, and education opportunities. Staff in our departments developed this plan so that our employees, commission colleagues, and customers can witness and grow in supportable and sustainable activities. And again, this is the framework from which we were working for this plan. To affirm what Mr. Nissel was saying, um, this plan was originally adopted in 2012 and further modified with its revisions as the policy stands today. We began our sustainability plan efforts in November of 2013, which educated all of the excuse me educated all of the employees in both departments in our plan moving forward. In order for all of our staff to understand how we were focusing our efforts, we implemented a definition of sustainability, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. This guiding principle and work focus will help us to definitely meet the needs of not only our generation, but those that will follow us. 
When looking at the objectives of the practice, the committee and the work groups focused on our working definition, as I just spoke, of sustainability. And in these objectives, you will see that we have covered a very broad range uh, that were defined definitely in the plan to use renewable resources, to build green buildings and sites, and to train our staff about public sustainability. We also focused on the fact that Montgomery County is working to implement sustainability standards, and we definitely will be working to comply with those standards within Montgomery County, as well as what we will do initially with our own commission and agency. For the record, my name is Ellen Bennett, Montgomery Parks Horticulture, Forestry, and Environmental Education Division. A year ago, the Montgomery Sustainability Coordinating Committee began our efforts to work with our colleagues and to assess current sustainability efforts already in place that meet many of the goals of the practice. Some of these efforts are reflected here, such as the Comprehensive Energy Management Program, Recycling and Solid Waste Management Program, and the MPDES Permit Implementation, which is the National Pollutant Discharge and Elimination System. In order to develop the two-year plan, a sustainability coordinating committee was identified, who will be introduced in a few moments. The group developed a sustainability work plan, which guided our work throughout the year as the two-year plan was created. Initial staff training was completed in fall 2013, and content work groups met in winter and spring of 2014. The two-year plan was developed with primary and future recommendations for action, and we hope to implement an FY16. As the name suggests, the plan will be reviewed and updated every two years. Now I'd like the members of the Sustainability Coordinating Committee to introduce themselves, and we will all be available for questions at the end of this presentation. Jeffrey? I'm Jeffrey Mason with the Park Planning and Stewardship Division. Jim Poor, Facilities Management. Also, um, unfortunately, Arnold Ramsamy is unable to join us today, but he is the Assistant Chief for Utilities in the Facilities Management Division of Parks. Um, he was instrumental in this plan as well. As was CQI Associates, which John mentioned, and I'd like to introduce Kathy Cagle in the audience, who has been instrumental in developing the plan. Most importantly, the committee had the support of 36 staff members on the 10 content work groups, and these groups really provided the core of the two-year plan. So 10 content expert work groups were developed to address the primary substance areas of the practice, which you see listed out here. Members for each group were chosen for their special expertise and work program. The proposed plan is born of the effort and results produced by these work groups, and we appreciate all the time and effort they devoted uh, to develop, develop the recommendations. The future implementation of our plan is dependent on the hire of a stable, excuse me, sustainability coordinator, um, and in addition, of course, budget considerations to help us to implement our objectives. The Department of Parks, in their recent presentation on the FY16 budget, requested and emphasized the importance of creating and hiring a sustainability coordinator to assist the departments with strategies, performance measures, and to help us implement our plan objectives and goals over the next two years. The recommendations from the work groups were extensive, 
And in order to abbreviate the presentation to you, I hope you have had a chance to look at the plan. They were detailed extensively within the plan. But we were focusing on the highest priority goals and objectives that the groups had defined. You will see in the next slide views that we have selected top three to four recommendations for each subject area. And in concert with the sustainability coordinator, we will be able to move forward with not only the goals of the plan, but achieve consistency with recommendations. With some of the goals appearing to be low-hanging fruit, consistency across the board implementation will help us progress in our goals and objectives. Future recommendations are also included in the plan and will be ready for action after our initial top tier recommendations are completed. The Employee Education Training and Engagement Group felt it would be most important to create educational <coughs> tools for staff to improve their sustainability efforts. Also to provide staff with training opportunities and to link sustainability goals to performance evaluations. The Community and Patron Education and Engagement Group felt the most important step to take in this area is to create a communications plan to engage the public. Our efforts to engage the public really need to be well planned and coordinated in order to be successful. Online resources for the community will be important and one very simple yet effective action will be to include sustainability information in our permitted customer packets. For the utility energy conservation um, objectives within the plan, I just wanted to mention if you're not familiar with Energy Cap, it's the program that monitors our commission energy use across all of our facilities. The Energy Cap provides metrics that guide us in our efforts to improve our energy consumption. This work group did focus on these key recommendations to move forward toward improved energy conservation. In our fleet management conservation group, both the planning department and the parks department have made significant efforts, efforts to update their fleet complements with hybrid vehicles. Upgrades and improved internal procedures with fleet equipment will assist in meeting these work group recommendations. And of course, this does include implementation of the new fuel mixtures that will add to this energy improvement. With regard to water conservation and management, it's recommended to not only document existing water conservation practices, but also to use the resulting data to implement water conservation standards identified in the practice. Gray water has been identified as an important resource to pursue, addressing issues related to the use of gray water at commission facilities, and potentially exploring a way, um, a gray water pilot project to capture and reuse rainwater at one of our facilities. And it's come to my attention just recently that for the Rock Creek maintenance facility, um, they are planning to try to incorporate gray water into that new design. So that's a good step in that direction. The Sustainable Acquisition and Use of Agency Supply Group um, really focused on a lot of the basic operations within the departments. Both departments are definitely interested in improving our sustainable purchasing and repurposing of surplus items. As our ERP program implements and as we embrace technology, this too will help us update procedures and share information. We do have a current sustainability webpage in use for the content work groups 
and this page will be released for all staff access to provide information and insist in sharing progress recommendations. Recommendations in the area of recycling and solid waste management focus on three very different yet important areas. Disposal of tires, both those used by our fleet and those dumped on our properties, is an ongoing problem. We need a unified approach to recycle them. Other areas of focus are paper saving through printing policies and reuse of office supplies, furniture, and other materials. The recommendations for sustainable infrastructure and natural areas focus primarily on the LEED or equivalent standards and the sustainable site standards. LEED provides standards for sustainable and green buildings and SITES provides standards for sustainable landscapes. It's recommended that LEED or equivalent and SITE standards are incorporated into facility plans, design projects, construction, construction specifications, park design guidelines, and pre-design assessments in standard scopes of work. It's further recommended that such projects obtain LEED or equivalent certification, including commissioning services. Recommendations for natural resources and habitat preservation include increased funding and staffing for the non-native invasive management program, which works to remove and prevent infestation of non-native invasive organisms in parks, and this is a growing problem. Staff also need increased training on integrated pest management, or IPM, practices and methodologies. IPM is a process used to deal with pest issues while minimizing risk to people in the environment. The staff that works to meet the NPDES permit needs mobile GIS, or geographic information systems, in order to document opportunities to restore degraded watersheds in parks. Our last group, but certainly not our least group, is our health and wellness work group. And this particular group focused on employee engagement through training and targeted health, safety, and wellness programs to support all of the work group's sustainable program goals. This group's focus will use the collected data from all group efforts to develop and validate training that will help us to meet our goals and develop sustainable practices. Education and wellness is very important to the commission and we really look forward to this portion of bringing our plan forward and to life. So as you can see, I believe that our team, our, not only the coordinating committee, but all of our participating staff members really were dedicated to this particular project and developing this plan. And we definitely want to create healthy communities, protect our environment, and create sustainable efforts that will magnify across Montgomery County. So lastly, we've completed our presentation, and if you have any questions, we'll be happy to answer them. Thank you. Any uh, questions? Yeah, just a simple one. I just wanted to know, because I understand how important the sustainability coordinator position is. I just wanted to know a little bit more about that. Will that person work sort of in a cross-functional management role because they're having to deal with all of the, the different groups in implementing? Yeah, the, um, <clears throat> the sustainability coordinator position would be housed under our facilities management division, mm -hmm. um, primarily because that's where we do all of our, our recycling efforts at the Jim Porter's division. We will work both with the park, all the park divisions as well as planning on cross efforts to, to make sure the plan is implemented fully. We'll also be coordinating a lot of our efforts with our folks over in our central administrative services office as well over in Riverdale to make sure their efforts are coordinated with ours as well. We just have to make sure that it's 
that it gets its equal uh, importance conveyed to the council on the budgets. Well, I, yeah, and on that point, I was going to say, say there you alluded a few points in the presentation to data collection. And I hope you get a good um, baseline measurement of, you know, every everything you're going to try to do in this, so you can show progress against where we are now, and also to document the cost effectiveness of of that, so you can show that, you know, if we reduce paper usage by using double-sided printing, you know, how much money does that save us, and how many, how much paper is, you know, that involve, or you know, all the way down the list of all the different. Uh, things you know, and even some of the things like, you know, GIS to identify uh, priority areas for uh, uh, damaged watersheds. If we can show, use some of that information, even if we don't have necessarily a cost figure associated with it. If you can show where you know stream banks are eroded and causing property damage or causing other uh, facilities to be unusable, or in some cases, I know there's places where there's pieces of a trail that are falling into the, you know, into the stream, you know, if you can show that and document it, it helps us to, sh to explain both now and then in the future why this is and retrospectively why it was worth the expenditure resources on the coordinator and the other time and, and resources that we've put into this. Uh, that's a question that we struggled with throughout this entire process. How do we develop a matrix and the measurement tool, because it's very important to us. We want to be able to demonstrate at the end of the day what our accomplishments are. We, we've, fortunately, jo uh, Dr. John Hench in the Park Planning Stewardship Division is going to be working very closely with us to develop those matrix so we can begin measuring those things once we launch this program. We do that now with our recycling program. You know, we can tell you exactly what the carbon footprint reduction has been through our van pool operation, for example and the amount of trash that we pull out of the, the streams and tires that we recycle. So it is something we've been doing, but we're very dedicated to making sure we capture those numbers to demonstrate to the other agencies in the county um, what our efforts have, have gotten us. Yeah, I would just suggest, that you, since you can't do everything at once, prioritize the ones that where it's easy to figure out what the cost-benefit is and where you can document them quickly and then work on that, and then as you go forward, you can think about how to capture some of these other things that are harder to, to uh, yeah. You know, the, um, the recycling effort that has been, you know, so successful to date uh, might be one of the things you want to kind of build on because you have a lot of data that you've already collected in, in terms of that. And, you know, I was at the um, semi-annual, I was, um, paid close attention to the little red wagon mm -hmm. initiative. It, it, I just thought about maybe in terms of educating the community in terms of recycling, it, with the number of festivals that we do, it might be uh, you know, something we might want to consider having something, not the same thing, but something similar that draws people's attention to the importance of recycling as a way of, you know, as a way of getting our message out, out more, because you guys have done a really good job with the, uh, with the recycling efforts. One of the things we pride ourselves in with this organization is education, and, and that started with the staff, with the recycling efforts that we've done. And even with the sustainability, sustainability practice, we, we began this whole effort off with 
with training all of our staff and bringing them all to the table, making it mandatory, and, and taking that same effort and moving it to the community, I think is a great idea, and we need to do more of that because it, we just need to build excitement around this um, because it is an exciting program, and I think it's something that people can get their arms around, they can see it's tangible, and they can take pride in. Before I end, I want to just say, Ms. McGrew, it's great to see some of our folks who aren't necessarily always public facing uh, come out. We know how, how many really uh, smart, uh, energetic, highly professional staff we have that sometimes the public never sees, and it's great to get some of you folks out, uh, not just to be in front of the board, but just to be engaged in some of this work, and I think it ties you closely into the mission of the organization for some of the people that um, are involved in the delivering the program directly. So thanks for your work on this. You did a fantastic job. Thank you very much. I was very pleased to be part of this group, and it's really dynamic, and I'm looking forward to seeing it through. Okay, Bennett Creek Conservation Park, Mr. Grease. Uh, good morning, um, Mr. Chair and members of the Planning Board. For the record, my name is Bill Grease. I'm with the Park Development Division of the Department of Parks. Uh, item four on your agenda today is a um, resolution that the staff is recommending you approve, which authorizes the acquisition of 260 acres from the Margaret T. Snow Estate to create a new park facility north of Damascus uh, of approximately 260 acres. This is uh, not a small effort that um, we're going to be engaged in here, and um, I think we should all be uh, proud of what we're going to be doing by uh, creating this new park, and we'll have uh, many years in the future of uh, uh, opening it and making it available for people to enjoy, hopefully for many years to come. Um, the acquisition of this 260 acres is going to cost us $2,659,805, which is supported by our independent appraisal reports. Uh, that number on our uh, agenda item is plus or minus because we're going to be based on the total number of acres that we're going to be buying, and uh, those surveys haven't been completed, but that is the approximate amount. Uh, in addition to asking you to approve the acquisition, we also are asking that you um, um, approve us investigating with county DOT an alternative funding strategy where they may contribute um, money to this acquisition and then use the property as part of their um, forest mitigation for uh, Montgomery County Department of Transportation construction projects. So we think this can be a win-win for uh, McDot as well as our um, funding program for parkland acquisition. So um, we discussed this in um, closed session last Thursday afternoon, and we're at, or Thursday afternoon, yes, and we're asking that you approve the resolution today to uh, move forward with the acquisition. Um, Brenda Sandberg is here from the Legacy Open Space uh, Program. If you have any questions, and I'm here as well, so um, it's up to the board to move ahead on this. Comments or questions? Motions? I move that we approve this acquisition. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. 
Thank you, Mr. Grace. Okay, thank you very much. Next item. Okay, the next item, item five on your agenda, uh, is also an acquisition item, but it's not related to uh, a park creation. Uh, what it is related to is the preserving of right-of-way for the future interchange, or great separated interchange, I should say, of George Avenue and Norbeck Road, um, just north of here. Um, the property is owned by um, Smalls Nursery LLC. It's a fairly expensive piece of property because of its uh, development potential, but by acquiring this property, we will be precluding that development from occurring and uh, be holding the land um, until the state of Maryland is ready to move forward with this uh, interchange construction project. Um, the purchase price is $3,750,000. We propose to acquire this using the Commission's Advanced Land Acquisition Fund, similar to what we did with um, acquisitions from ALR for the Intercounty Connector uh, that went over a period of uh, more than 30 years uh, from the mid-70s through the end of the, the decade or century. Um, since it is an ALRF acquisition, I'll have to take this to the Montgomery County Council for their approval, and I have made some preliminary contacts in anticipation of you uh, approving this today. So I'm asking that you approve the resolution uh, authorizing the purchase of the property from Smalls Nursery LLC, and um, hopefully we can move forward and protect this uh, right-of-way for this important future transportation project. If you have any questions, I'm here to answer them. Uh, any questions or comments? Motions? I recommend approval of the staff uh, acquisition. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Great. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate Thanks your, for your work uh, on these. Very good. Thank you. We're going to take a short break.
Okay, we're ready for Alan Wood, preliminary uh, Yes, <clears throat> good morning, Commissioner Anderson, Chairman Anderson, and members of the planning board. Um, for the record, my name is Carlton Gilbert. I'm in Area 2 Planning. Uh, this case is the Allen Wood Preliminary Plan, case number 12014-0150. Um, with me is Amy Lindsay, Environmental Planner in Area 2. Um, I'd like to provide you a brief overview of this uh, application request. Staff is recommending approval uh, with conditions. This preliminary plan subdivides parcel 145 into three lots in accordance with section 50-29 of the subdivision regulations. The proposed lots, <clears throat> excuse me, the proposed lots meets, meet the standards for the R200 zone. It is consistent with the Aspen Hill Master Plan. This master plan includes preliminary force conservation plan and is recommended for approval. The plan meets all applicable requirements of Chapter 22A. It, and within Chapter, two, tw chapter 22A, a variance is recommend was, uh, it includes a Chapter 22A variance for the removal of 25 trees and impact to 10 trees that are 30 inches and greater. The proposed lots do not generate 30 or more vehicle trips, therefore there's not, it is not subject to a, our LATR and no TPAR is required to satisfy the APA test as well. The site um, is, a, is parcel 145 outlined in red. Uh, as you can see, it's heavily forested. It's located at the southeast quadrant at the intersection of Norback Road and Wood Center Road, consists of 5.6 acres. It is located in R200 zone, surrounded by single-family dwellings, also located in that zone. This is located within the Aspen Hill Master Plan. There is an existing dwelling, um, shed and garage, located on the site that would need to be removed. Um, the current access to this property is off of Wood Center Road. Uh, the stream, wetland, wetlands, floodplains, and associated buffers are all situated in the northern one-third part of this property, which will be preserved. <clears throat> the proposal is, again, to subdivide parcel 145, consistence of the three lots, lots uh, 25, lot 25, lot 26, and lot 27. Each lot will front on Wood Center Road with its own individual driveway for access. Uh, the subdivision provides adequate space for stormwater. Um, and this is stormwater management uh, via dry wells, which are, which are located on each lot. Uh, there is 18 feet of uh, right-of-way that must be dedicated along Wood Center Road here. This is the 18 feet and this is a condition of approval. Uh, the preliminary plan data tables are indicated does meet the requirements of the R200 zone. Uh, the minimum lot area for the smallest lot is uh, lot 27, which is at 51,566 square feet. The largest lot is around 121,125 square feet. I will allow Amy Lindsay at this point to um, brief you on the environmental impacts. For the record, Amy Lindsay area too. Just as Carlton mentioned, the, this property is pretty heavily impacted by both uh, stream valley buffer and by existing forest. So that's one of the major site constraints that drives the design of this property and location of the lots. 
as you can see, the heavy dashed line is the environmental buffer. And then the, the darker green is the forest. This shows the proposed preliminary forest conservation plan with areas of clearing in pink um, and then the preserved forest in the dark green. And you can see that all new impacts are kept out of the stream valley buffer. They're using the existing driveway, which is in the stream valley buffer, but they've mitigated for it by providing some additional planting. Now, there are areas of trees that will be preserved along the fronts of the property, but they will not be put in easement. So even though not everything is being cleared for forest conservation purposes, it's being shown as that. Oh, and finally, we, we do have a change to this condition to reflect the new process of recording um, easements by deed and being shown on record plats. So that's just for the record, a Category 1 conservation easement approved by the MNC PPC Office of the General Counsel must be recorded in the Montgomery County land records by deed prior to any demolition, clearing, or grading, and the library folio for the easement must be referenced on the record plat. The plat must depict the easement. So in summary, staff's recommendation is approval of this preliminary plan with conditions as enumerated in the staff report and adoption of the re resolution is modified herein. Uh, the condition um, number two is, um, as, as noted in the staff report, remains consistent with the adopted resolution for A, that remains the same language. B language is the same, which was originally uh, itemized as C on, in the staff report. Um, and then with the adopted uh, language for the resolution, we've added the new language, um, which is referenced as C. So that concludes my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, would the applicant like to make a presentation, or are you, do you just want to take questions? Uh, Mr. Chair, members of the board. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Mr. Chair, members of the board, uh, Kevin Foster with the firm of Good Chick, Little and Weber. Uh, today with me to my left is uh, Mr. Marty Mitchell from Mitchell and Best Homes, the applicant, and also Ralph Mobley from uh, Mitchell and Best. Um, we certainly uh, thank staff for their work on this project, and we agree with the uh, uh, staff recommendations. I think there was also um, some discussion with staff about um, clarification language uh, as it regards to the existing house that's out there today. Um, uh, the issue is uh, with an existing house that um, is eventually going to be torn down, uh, there's an impact tax uh, impact to that house. You, know, the, you get a waiver for the uh, uh, ta impact taxes for one house if you're you know, going to tear it down and then build a new one. The caveat is it has to be um, your new construction has to begin with when, within a year of the um, demolition of the existing house and we just wanted to clarify because of the um, lengthy time it takes one for the record plat process and just the soft market today um, we wanted to make sure it was clear to try to get some leadway and tearing that house down as late in the process as we could and I think we had worked some language out uh, with the general counsel on um, just trying to do that um. David Lieber, for the record, I don't want to speak for the planning department staff about their support for this or not, but I did discuss uh, with Mr. Foster um, 
that my, my, the issue here is that the house will cross a lot line. The existing house will cross a lot line, which is, you know, forbidden. Uh, and, um, but uh, based on my discussions with um, Kathy Conlon, uh, if they, as long as they remove the house before the plat is recorded, they could move, which would put it pretty far out into the future, and you can hold off on recording the plat. You can have the plat signed off on, approved, all that good stuff, and then when they get close to being ready to pull building permits, they can record the plat as long as they do it within the five years that the preliminary plan requires. Uh, they should be okay. So. Um, to give them some comfort, and I think that as a matter of practice, that could play out in that manner, but if they want some comfort about it, uh, the board could add a condition before plat recordation, the applicant must remove all structures from the property. They had requested that they be able to do that before building permit, but um, I think given the issue about having a building sitting on top of a recorded, a new recorded lot line, Putting it prior to plat recordation would, you know, basically address their concerns without raising concerns amongst our staff. And, with, and when they record is uh, totally under their control, no matter how long it, the plat platting process takes. Well, we we um, I believe we actually record the plats once they're signed off on. So, and what my understanding is that. Um, we can hold the recordation of the plat in, co in coordination with them. Uh, so, okay. is that so? That is a standard practice to hold the recordation of a plat. It's not a well. Out? It's not a standard practice. I think it's more common to try to record them as soon as the uh, as soon as they're signed off on. But it, it isn't. There's anything to prevent it. I just think it's sort of more orderly to get them recorded as soon as they're signed off on. But mm -hmm. I don't think that that it poses any any problem. What would happen in the event that they just never went forward with that one for some reason? The, the, you know, that Mitchell and Des says oh, we're, we're done. Yeah. I know that's not going to happen, but um, you know something could happen. Would that because that is still crossing well, the lot line? What would force that structure to be removed to keep the other things in compliance? Well, if the plat is never recorded then there won't ever be the division. The, the division. Okay. It, it so will, it's, it's it, not individual. It's, it's going to go together as one, one plat making the change. Um, well, it's the, the, the condition would be before plat recordation, which means before any plat is recorded would be, I think, the way you would interpret okay. that. So I don't think there's going to be a situation in which some plats get recorded, the house doesn't get court. Could, could we be really specific about that? How does this, if it's not a standard practice, how do we keep records of this, you know, in our, for staff who would normally handle these things to know that, okay, this, it's okay this time to sign off on it but not record well, if it? Well, I think if a building permit were to come in on this and our plat flags that, the, 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 sorry, our staff would flag that the plat hasn't been You know me, um, I'm squeamish about anything that's recorded. not standard. Okay. Uh, Rose Krasnow, for the record. Uh, while it is true that that we actually facilitate the actual recording of the plat, the applicant has the full validity period time okay. to record the plat. Okay. And in fact, one of the things, and we'll discuss it later today when we're talking about uh, the bill that's been proposed, is that some applicants, depending on market conditions, actually prefer not to record yeah. the plat right away because it usually changes their tax status. Okay. Yeah, that's so, what I, I thought, that, yeah. the, that the property owner is the one who records well, I think that what David was saying is that 
uh, they bring us the mylar and, and we get it to the courthouse, I believe. I see, but uh, it's sort of within their control to. Yes, they, they may not bring it to us right. to take it to the courthouse yeah. if they prefer to wait. So I think that the condition that Mr. Lieb has proposed um, provides the protections that you're concerned Rose, about. Rose, that's different, I think, isn't it? Not bringing it to us at all is one thing because then it's not in our hands to go through a standard process of filing it. For what reason would it be brought to us but not filed? If, it's a, if we approve it, what action can the applicant take even though it is not filed? I mean, we should probably call our record plat specialist down, but my understanding, we don't sit on the record plat. When it's brought to us for recording, we get it recorded, okay. but we don't sit on them here. So it would have to be that the applicant could not bring it forward to be signed, which Correct. is different because it, if they could, then couldn't they lawfully build start. out the other two? Well, I think that what David was saying is that I don't know if they're planning to rec to have three separate plats. I assume they are, but he was saying that he feels the way the condition is being written, um, that the recording of any of those three plats would require the, the, the demolition of the house. Okay. That's okay. Nice and, and, if, and if the board is amenable to that condition, we'll add it into the uh, resolution. You can still approve the resolution. We'll just do it with that understanding. I think Whatever. we I think we have another speaker signed up, Mr. Hansen. Can we clarify one point on that? So I guess, I guess what we were just trying to clarify that during the uh, the record plat process now, you know, DPS signs the plats first, then the plats come to the board, they get approved, and then they go to recordation. What we were what we would like to have happen is you know after approval but before recordation the houses have to get torn down so that would really be you know after dps signs the plat after you guys approve it but before it gets recorded that's when the houses would have to get torn down we were just trying to make sure that we weren't going to be forced to tear the houses down at the beginning of the record plat process you know because the process is so time consuming sometimes not always but sometimes that we just wanted to make sure we were going to be tearing the house down at the end of the process and not be forced to do it before somebody would even review the plat. That's all. Okay. I think we understand. Okay. Uh, Mr. Hansen, come on up. <clears throat> yeah, that would, be, that would be just fine. It's already on, so just uh, tell us your name for the record uh, whenever you're ready. All right. My name is Carl Hansen. I am uh, an owner and a resident on Wood Centers Road, which is a dead-end road with nine or ten properties on it. It's a heavily wooded area. That's why it's called Wood Center. It's a, uh, a quiet oasis for us. And we have some concerns about, well, I say we. I, I've talked with my, many of my neighbors, they're not able to be here. So when I say we, I understand that it's probably just me, uh, are concerned about uh, the nuisance involved in the construction itself, but more importantly that the character uh, of the road is going to be changed. And a, a couple of concerns there are uh, what you were just talking about, tearing down the house. The existing structure is sort of a nuisance. We've had to call the police because people have been in there, and we'd like to see it go sooner rather than later. I understand that there are other concerns involved. Uh, 
again, coming back to this idea that we live in Wood Centers Road, uh, removing 25 trees with a variance seems excessive. Uh, particularly considering that once the houses are built and they're sold, the new owners will then probably seek permits to remove even more trees. On the other side, further up towards Georgia Avenue, is a new development called Keltrip Court. And that area was heavily wooded at one time. It was essentially clear cut. And there was a very small reforestation area which was entirely inadequate. And we would want to ensure that the nature of the area where we live, the nature itself, uh, is conserved. Uh, a couple of concerns about uh, the improvements. Our road is quite narrow. It's just barely two lanes. It doesn't carry much traffic. So we're wondering do we really need sidewalks on that little stretch in front of the new houses? Considering that on Norbeck, there are no sidewalks. There's no place for us to go as pedestrians. So the, just so I understand you, the, the sidewalks in front of the three would not connect to anything that's existing that's right. in your neighborhood? Okay. Uh, and it wasn't clear I'm sorry. It wasn't clear in the plan where the 18 feet was measured from. Is it from the edge of the road or is it from the center of the road? Do you know, Mr. Gilbert? For the record, Carlton Gilbert is measured from the edge of the road. It's a 60 foot wide right of way with the 18 feet or 18 foot dedication um, required. It would make it a 78 foot wide right of way okay. with no sidewalks. Mm -hmm. No sidewalks. Um, this would maintain consistency with the existing um, neighborhood. So, could you clarify, please, those 18 feet from the edge, are those to be cleared as well? Mr. Axler is going to uh, hopefully uh, clarify this. At Axler Area 2, to answer the question, it's eight, uh, it would be the right, right of way is measured from the opposite right of way for a total of 78 feet. Uh, it doesn't imply any, just because you're dedicating right away, that doesn't necessarily mean you're removing trees. I, and I have Amy Limsey talk about whether the trees are affected. I can't answer that question. But doesn't necessarily mean just because you're dedicated right away, not necessarily removing the tree. And the reason why sidewalks aren't required is because for large, for larger, for properties that with larger um, zones, sidewalks aren't required by code. Uh, any other questions? Uh, the I continue to have a concern about those 18 feet, whether they're going to be cleared or not, because along much of the road, the, the woods comes right up to, I think, 8 or 10 feet to the, to the edge of the road. Well, well what, what can be cleared by the property owners is a separate question from 
uh, how much right of way will be dedicated. Okay. I mean, like in front of my house, there's trees that go almost all the way up to the street. They're in the right of way, mm -hmm. and typically, unless the unless uh, DOT finds a need to widen the road or build sidewalks or to put some kind of stormwater facility in the right of way, they're not going to come in and cut down the trees just because they there is right of way there. Most mm -hmm. people have right of way in front of their house. They probably think it's part of their yard, right. but actually, there's a the legal right to use that space belongs to the to the public. So it sounds like in this case we're not it wouldn't be any reason to think anybody's gonna come in by virtue of the right of way dedication. Now if you wanna do you wanna address this forest conservation issue and tree tree issues specifically? Certainly. Um actually in this case uh, and I apologize uh, because this slide was sort of indicating something else, but there's actually the limits of disturbance come along down this way. There will be clearing of trees here for a drainage swale because we have to provide positive drainage to move the water down next to the roadway. So there will be clearing within that area of dedication. However, not all of this area that is shown as cleared, yeah. that, that doesn't necessarily mean all of the trees are being removed. In this case, um, trees are being left, but they're not being protected with an easement. So, for example, the limits of disturbance actually come along fairly close next to the driveways. So there will be an area of trees in the front yard that will be preserved but you're right, an individual homeowner could remove the trees just like you can remove a tree on your property. Now, everything shown in dark green will be protected by a Category 1 conservation easement. So the homeowners will not be able to remove those trees. We've just found that for um, enforcement reasons and for um, you know, maintenance reasons that it's best not to put Category 1 conservation easements in people's front yards. But, but there are areas in between each of these driveways where the trees are not proposed for, to be removed, mm -hmm. but they just are not being preserved by an easement. You might want to explain what a Category 1 conservation easement is. Certainly. I'm sorry. A Category 1 conservation easement is our most stringent easement. And that easement does not allow for the removal of understory. means that that what's there must be preserved as forest, not um, not as tree cover, right? You can't pull out all of the brush. You can't destroy the habitat and plant grass underneath it. It must be maintained as forest. And is that made clear in whatever deeds that the owners get? Yes, one yeah, of the things recorded, said. Uh, that will be recorded in the land records. So anybody who uh, buys the property in the future will see that 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 it's illegal to cut down those those trees. But you raised the other question of the clearing for the uh, development that's planned. Uh, Ms. Lindsay, do you want to explain the variance process and why, uh, why the variance is recommended? Certainly. Um, we require a variance for the, for the impacts or removals to any trees with um, a size greater than or equal to 30 inches diameter. So these are, these are fairly large trees. And in this case, 
development was definitely constrained by the environmental buffer. We don't want to spread development out and have uh, development next to the stream. So th this is actually the, the minimum number of trees to be impacted or lost in order for the property owner to develop it with this number of lots, um, as well as have um, some form of backyard so that uh, the property owner, you know, whoever buys it will be able to use their property mm -hmm. as a, a standard residential. Um, and we look at these trees very carefully. They, they undergo a, a fair amount of scrutiny with moving the limits of disturbance um, as close as possible, you know, to the, to the development, but still leaving the trees in a safe condition so we're not setting up a, a situation where a, a tree is likely to fall on a house or a person. Thank you for explaining all that. Uh, still 25 trees, 30 inches a lot, and having them replaced by 15 that are three inch caliper, uh, we don't think is gonna make up for it. Uh, these are enormous trees, tulip poplars, I think 23 out of the 25 are, the two others are oaks. Uh, the, is, it, it's always very noticeable when you, when you lose a tree, especially yeah. a larger caliper. In, in this case, um, as Amy Lindsay was explaining regarding the variance process, mm -hmm. this, this owner, landowner, has a right according to the zoning, which has mm -hmm. been in place for some time, to submit for this resubdivision. So what the variance process looks at is, is this the minimum that would be necessary for someone to go forward with something would, that would be their right to build? So <coughs> our staff looks at it from that perspective too. Is there another way you could get around it? Could you push the house back? Could you not take a tree down? But in this case, because it's compounded by the uh, stream valley buffer, it would be very difficult for an applicant to go forward with any of these without taking down these trees. So our staff has found this is the minimum in order to go forward with the building. The law requires that they review it from that perspective mm -hmm. and also that it's not conferring on these people some sort of special privilege, and it's not. It's, it's just, it's unfortunate that those trees are that big, but I think you have to look at it as roughly eight trees per home and the minimum that they have to do to get in it. So for the applicant, the alternative would be not to go forward, which would be a hardship. So that's the reason that a variance like this is presented as something that can be allowed. They're not, re we're, they're not required to allow the property owner to necessarily make the absolute maximum use of the development potential their property, but they have to be able to make what's legally considered a reasonable use of their property. So in light of the the size of the lots and the and the zoning and in order to and in light of the other environmental rules like the environmental buffer the staff is looking to minimize the impact to these larger uh, trees while still allowing some reasonable development potential uh, based on what the owner could reasonably expect to get out of the property and uh, a final follow-up on this before moving to my last point uh, enforcement of this variance? How, how does that happen? We have, um, we have forest conservation inspectors who, um, there's something called a pre-construction meeting. And our forest conservation inspectors meet on site with inspectors from the Department of Permitting Services. Mm -hmm. They walk the limits of disturbance for, right, we make certain that they match 
for the sediment control plans. And at that time, tree protection measures are installed. And the inspector goes back out onto this property a number of times, even though he's only required to go out there a certain number of times. They actually stop by and check these um, sites more often. Um, but if you observe, if you think that the property owner is doing something that's not consistent with this plan now that you've seen this, you can call up the staff and ask, ask for uh, somebody to investigate. And if there's a problem, there's an investigation, and they can go through a hearing process. And so there's a uh, pretty involved enforcement process. We've been very stringent over the past many yes. years. Yes. All right, then on to my, my final uh, question is that I understand that there are a number of covenants associated with the property, but I didn't see those mentioned in the proposed plan. Should they have been? What is the status of covenants in the planning process? Um, I think what you're referring to is there is um, a, a homeowner's, well, it's not a homeowner's association. With this property, I do remember that there was a private covenant. Mm -hmm. In this case, the planning department does not address private covenants. That is a, a civil matter. Yeah, if we record the easement in favor of the Park and Planning Commission, that's something that we can enforce. But if you have a covenant that's in favor of another private party, that you, that's between the parties to that. It's basically like a, it's almost like a contract, but it's it maybe in the land records, and it, it may or may not be enforceable by somebody else. But I think the applicant is uh, waving and indicating that they have maybe something to add on this. You can stay where you are. It's, on the, uh, oh no! I mean, you come forward. I meant Mr. I meant Mr. Hansen. He can he can stay there. Again, Kevin Foster, GLW. There are a set of private covenants that were recorded back in the 50s before really any of this subdivision work was done, and they really uh, amount to setbacks. There's a, a 50 foot side yard setback required, a 75 foot front yard setback required, and our plan was really designed to take all those into account because, as you said, the, the county is not in the, or park and planning is not in the position to, uh, you know, dictate whether private covenants get enforced or not, but it's a title issue. So we have to make sure that we meet those, and we have done that. I also would like to point out again, for the record, Marty Mitchell uh, with the applicant. Um, we were very concerned about the character of the road that came up in the community meeting in several cases. This road happens to be designated a primary road, um, even though it's dead-ended into a cul-de-sac. Um, and from our understanding, it would have uh, taken more than I have lifetime left to get that changed through the master plan process. So it originally was a 60-foot right-of-way during the time of our going through the approvals, it went to a 78-foot right-of-way for a primary road. So that's where the 18 feet came from. Uh, we then went through an extensive process. Staff worked with us in a, many different ways and along with DOT to receive basically waivers from the primary road requirements to get it back to what is really more of a tertiary road requirement except for the 18-foot dedication. So. We were able to get the sidewalk. We were able to adjust some grading and some other things that helped us 
save some trees more in the front yard, but also deal with the requirement of what the master plan has for that roadway. Okay. Any other uh, comments or questions from board members? No. Motions? Yes, all things considered, I uh, move that we approve the staff recommendation for the Allenwood preliminary plan along with the forest conservation plan and the conditions as modified and the resolution. I think that covers it all. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carries. Thank all of you.
Ms. Jones, why don't you come on, come on up? Um, everybody here needs to be here? Mr. Russ? Oh, Rose. Okay, Mr. Russ, any time you're ready. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, for the record, Greg Russ from Functional Planning and Policy. Uh, Subdivision Regulation Amendment uh, 1303 uh, uh, proposes to modify the subdivision regs uh, uh, so that uh, only the planning staff would need to review submitted plat drawings and and an, an approval box need only be provided for the planning board and, and any other agency uh, expressly required to approve a record plat. Uh, and uh, uh, reference to DPS as the applicable county agency approving road and street profile plans is, is removed from the, the subdivision language. Uh, it would also uh, section, amend section 50-37 to state that record plats only need to be signed by the planning board, uh, um, not by the Department of Permitting Services. Uh, making it, uh, an assumption that you you actually you, you read through this this staff report, I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize this uh, by by basically saying that uh, staffs recommendation on here was to table this 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 uh this uh sra uh, based on a, a number of factors uh the the olo report which uh dealt with the overall development review, review process including uh the record plat uh, uh situation um also the 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 planning board and, and other agencies are working to streamline the the, uh, the development review process, including the record plat uh, situation, um, and and also um, the planning board, uh, along with other agencies, working with the planning board's e-plan process to to uh, basically deal with the record plats. Um, online um, now and everybody's uh, comments uh, being handled that way as, a, as opposed to you know duplicating the paper paperwork from from that standpoint uh, we 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 looked at that uh, all these things that are more recent um, uh, 
processes put in place to to say, okay, well, maybe we need to just wait until, you know, there's more time uh, uh, in terms of how how this works out uh, before we we make changes to the process uh, in terms of deciding whether DPS or any other agency should should actually sign uh, uh, the record plat. Uh, because we believe whether they sign it or not, they are still integral in the process in terms of coordinating comments from from themselves as well as other agencies. Uh, but at the same time, uh, um, if they if they aren't signing that, they'll still be integral in that process. They still have to review uh, the record plans, et cetera. So that's. That's where our mentality uh, uh, was in terms of whether whether it, we recommend approval or, or recommend tabling it. it uh, we didn't really have an objection to the to the SRA from the standpoint of whether they sign it or not. But because we were in the in the midst of all of these ch recent changes, I, mean, I believe it was maybe July when we went to e plans. Uh, um, so that that's where we. That's where we came out in terms of uh, of the staff report, uh, recognizing that uh, obviously D DPS and they'll they'll speak for themselves uh, would rather that the, the signature remain uh, uh, on the on the record plat for their their reasons. Uh, we we could we could deal with it. Uh, Probably better if we were uh, really seeing how the timing uh, is reduced, you know, based on all these changes that were were, were put in place. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that right now. Kathy's here, who's more of an expert on subdivision and record plats, and and Rose, who's obviously in, in charge of development review for you for a number of years uh, can deal with the details of that. But that's that's where we came out on our, our staff report. Uh, we're, we're here to vet this out um, to, to see if if there are other ideas that that may come into play that we can we can incorporate into our recommendation. Um, and uh, I'll leave it at that and and we'll be happy to just uh, talk through the, the process if people are unfamiliar with how the process works. Thank you. For the record, Kathy Conlin um, with uh, the Development Application um, and Regulatory Coordination Division, and I am also the supervisor of our record plat reviewers. And I just want to um, uh, add on to what Greg has already said that you know this um, uh, SRA was actually introduced quite some time ago, and um, I think the. Um, you know, our reaction to the idea that um, administratively there's not a need to have two signatures on the plat, there's a lot of times and in a lot of ways that we agree with that, the signature sometimes um, uh, allows administrative details that aren't really material to the plat, in our opinion, to um, create some delays in the process. But, um, but those are definitely not the kinds of delays that are um, the reason the record plat process takes a long time. DPS and park and planning staff um, review of the plat is important. It's, it's, what they do is very important. 
Um, what the planning staff does is very important. It, there, it, I think it is true that um, just having to have both signatures sometimes um, means that an issue that is um, is not material to the plat delays the plat. But um, when we were talking about this SRA and as a result of its introduction initially, um, we you know we said that the approach maybe should be that we meet and we talk about our roles and we try to better define them and we try to just find ways to work better together. We've done a lot of that since the initial um, introduction of the of the SRA in the time that um, uh, between then and now and, and this discussion. Those measures that we've tried that we think we've put into place really haven't had time to play out. So um, I think our recommendation is based on the fact that um, we want to give it a chance to play out. We, we do think that we can work with DPS staff and um, we respect what they do. We hope they respect what we do. And, and we have these mechanisms that, you know, hopefully are the discussions we've had and the agreements that we've made moving forward, they'll work. Um, so we don't, we think maybe it's premature to just go all the way to um, changing the code. Um, there is an effort in, in place to rewrite the code uh, as part of the reaction to the new zoning ordinance and um, uh, it's not like we're not going to be visiting it again very soon. Um, so that led to our, our uh, recommendation today that um, maybe it's premature to to um, to go all of that way, although we are not, we don't really think the signature is that um, the material part of um, uh, the delays that occur as record plats at record plat. Uh, Ms. Jones, do you want to add to this? And I, if I could just ask the general question of if you could explain why it is that you think it's important for a DPS to have signature authority because. You know, in principle, I always thought the idea was that the plat is just supposed to conform to what was approved in the plan. So, if you could address why these issues shouldn't be a, a part entirely encompassed within the earlier development review process before the uh, plan is approved. Well, let me be clear. First of all, Diane Schwartz Jones, I'm the director of the Department of Probing Services, and thank you, and thank you for accommodating for us to be able to be here as well. Um, First of all, I want to point out that even this SRA will not get DPS's signature off of record plats because under state law, uh, the environment, Maryland Department of the Environment, there are regulations that have been adopted and we are delegated the authority and required to approve all record plats of subdivision to ensure that there's adequacy of um, water and sewer and well and septic capacity. That's a state law requirement that's there. And this isn't going to touch that. But what does a record plat do? Um, and I, I think Could it's I ask you just one question on that, Dan? Do they require that the approval is just the approval on its face or that specifically that the 
approval is noted on a record plan. It, they, they require an affirmative approval of a subdivision. So one way or another, there has to be an affirmative approval of the subdivision. I'm only so, asking that because sometimes we have discussions back and forth about whether something should be, you know, deed or whatever recorded on the record plat. Does it have to be on the record plat? Does it not? So I wanted to see if that's something that can be done apart from the issue of an actual signature on the plat. So let's talk about what the plat does, though, because I think it's pretty, it's a critically important document. And I'm actually going to ask that you all um, recommend disapproval of the subdivision regulation amendment. I think it's that important. Um, and I have made no bones about it in my conversations with Mr. Reamer that I think it is not good government. Um, what is reflected in this subdivision regulation amendment. So what does the record plat do? A record plat goes into the land records and it puts the world on notice of certain things. It puts the world on notice of what the different lots are and it, it also affects a dedication to public use, to Montgomery County of the roads and the rights of ways that are reflected in that. That is a critically important thing. So that is the instrument by which a, an um, aspect of title or the ownership interest for the public comes to Montgomery County. And I think that from a, the, you know, to, to create something, while, while the creation of the individual lots themselves doesn't convey those lots, it, it tells the world what those lots are, it does create the dedication of the rights of way. And you need to know, and I don't think you want it to be incumbent upon the planning board, which has no ownership in the right-of-way, has no ongoing accountability for the right-of-way to be the sole determiners of that. I think you would want to know from the county government in a written form that not only is it being dedicated, but the party to whom it's being dedicated agrees that it is properly reflected on the plat. And one of the issues that does come up, and um, the planning director Wright and I have had conversations about if there are earlier ways to identify some of these problems are issues such as overlapping easements. These are critically important. If an overlapping, if a right-of-way is put on top of an existing easement, then that right-of-way is secondary to the prior rights of the easement that's already on the ground, which would mean that that, whoever is the beneficiary of that easement can come in and disrupt the public right-of-way. They could do it without a permit, they can do it without the, the financial or the pecuniary accountability, the, the protections that are put in place for public travel, all of that becomes secondary. And so the, the, the places where I've seen that there's delay um, or that has been brought to my attention oftentimes deal with that issue. Now, with respect to park and, uh, excuse me, WSSC, we've worked that out. We have the language now when it comes up, we're able with form language to very easily um, address it. But it's critically important and it needs to be addressed. And I think that the planning board would want to know that, that we have approved it. There's a, yet another very critically important element um, on why I think the planning board needs to know in some written form, and, and it's, the signature doesn't hold anything up, it really doesn't, in some written form that the executive branch of government has approved and the things that are in place to protect the public are on that plat. And that goes to our grading and our paving and the permits and the PIE, the um, public improvement agreements, the things that are necessary to know that lots aren't being sold off. Because under state law, you cannot sell lots that are not recorded. You're supposed to have a record plat in place. It's supposed to be <coughs> subdivided for these lots to be sold. 
And what was happening, and the, we, the uh, county went on to the signatures, I think, in the early 60s. What was happening is lots were being sold off, and there was never, the permits hadn't been issued for the roadways. So just what was necessary for the one lot or the two lots or the three lots would be built, and the entire right-of-way wasn't being built. And the, the, we have a lot of dedicated but unmaintained rights-of-ways in the county. They've been around there for a very long time. We look at it, we make sure when we sign it, the people who are buying those lots, you know that as well, that the necessary grading and paving permits are issued, and we're saying to you that these things are in place that are important for the orderly development and sale of property in the uh, county. Hold on a second, though. The notice, as you said at the beginning, the plat is about notice. It's not about... Uh, affirming that there is or is not pavement on a piece of dirt, right? So if somebody hasn't built the road improvement they're supposed to build, why is that an issue that should be, what does that have to do with the plat? Because they could sell off, they, if you've come in, let's say somebody's coming in and they're subdividing, they're, there's a, a small street, they're subdividing maybe 10 lots, and they're dedicating a road to the public, they're dedicating it, so in theory, it should match up to what it needs to match up, and you need to know from us that it does. But they can then, term, if, if we had not signed it, and then maybe the permits have or haven't been issued. We don't, you know, you're, you're taking that on yourself to know whether or not and to check and make sure that the grading and the paving permits have been issued. So but then the but, as, the prop, but as the buyer of the lot, you are on notice. You go look at the land record, and your title search shows that there should be a road there. But who's going to build it? The title search doesn't tell you that the permits are there. The process that has been legislatively put in place tells the, you that the permits are there. If you take us out of that role, you have no inkling about whether or not the permits are in place for that road to be built. That's one of the things that we look at, and we will not sign off on it if the grading paving permits are not in place to ensure that the roads to support oh, that hold on. work You're is done. This, I th I th I'm, I'm having a trouble with this because I don't understand what the, why, there has to, why there should be a connection between whether or not permits are issued and whether or not the plat can be signed. Okay, so let's, because the plat, once the plat is signed, it goes into the land records. Once it goes into the land records, I own, I own let's say I own 50 acres, and I'm subdividing it into 10 lots. Um, I'm dedicating a road, I'm dedicating, the road just dedicates the, the dirt to the public. And if there's, if the county doesn't sign off on it and the regulations that are in place right now to ensure that the grading and paving permit or a public improvement agreement is in place to guarantee that that road is built, I own the first two lots maybe. I'm going to build a small road. I, I can just build it as a very small road. I, just the width that I need for my cars to access it. And this is what has happened historically. So these two lots have access. I can go off and sell off the other properties. And so then the next person comes in and says, well, I'm going to extend the driveway here. They do that. Then the next person comes in and they come to get permits and they can't get their permits because fire and rescue can't get back there because the full width of the right-of-way isn't built as a road. And nobody has taken on the development responsibility of ensuring that the road is built. And that is a critically important thing in the orderly development of property. And we... But that, why isn't that just a permitting issue? I mean, why... 
why are you issuing building permits to people who haven't fulfilled their obligation to build the infrastructure that they're obligated to build, notwithstanding what it says in the land records? I mean, why don't you have the power to say, no, you can't, no, get, we're a not, you can't get a building permit because you have a development approval here that says you're supposed to build a sidewalk and a road that's supposed to be, you know, well, 25 gonna... feet wide, and you can't do just a 12-foot, one-lane, dead-end, you know, slip for your one lot because the, the approval says you got to build a... I think you end up with an undue hardship that is placed on a single building permit. You all control an orderly sense of development and the sense of what you're approving. If the issue is then, then we cannot issue a building permit, then somebody's going to come in and he's going to be the buyer of that one piece of, that one lot in that 20 lot subdivision. They're going to come to us for a permit and we're going to say, I'm sorry, unless you build this entire roadway, you cannot get your permit. So the developer has subdivided the property, gotten the value of the property as subdivided, sold it off, and left this, per this, this um, lot purchaser holding the bag. That's not what we want to do. I don't think that makes good sense. I don't think it's good government. So, Well, wouldn't the lot purchaser only be responsible for their piece of it and, and to make sure that it's in accordance with what was approved? But, but that's where you don't end up with a road that's built according to county standards. You end up with a little piece of a road. You have this all over the county where this has happened historically. The law was changed to keep this from happening. This is a movement backwards. And, you know, if you, one way or another, somebody's going to end up holding the bag. The point of having a development scheme, you have assurance that the road is built. The developer comes in. We have assurance there's a permit that assures that the entire road is going to be built, and as lots are sold off and people are building their houses on it, they're going to know that they have the infrastructure to have it complete. Well, wouldn't they not have access if the one, the one piece can't support just one? Wouldn't it have to be built in total and the, the parcel owner responsible for that infrastructure in order to sell off individuals? I'm sorry. In order, if someone, let's just use your example. If someone has five, I'm trying to understand what point you're making about the pieces, if, if it's a parcel that doesn't have access or requires, a, you know, a, let's say a 60-foot road, 60-foot right away, you can't build on lot number one and have it accessible and get the permits if there's no way to get to it. It's got to have, have a street frontage. You'd have a driveway. You don't have but to. But you, you have to have a connection to something that would be, right. that would match what the approved infrastructure was. You would have a driveway to the main road. That's what I could happens. Just add in. I, so. I think we may be talking about apples and oranges a little bit. The record plat, as a document, can't force someone to build a road. The record plat identifies the right of way and sets it aside as the land that can be used for that road to be built. We perhaps need to tighten our preliminary plan conditions, even on smaller projects, to make it very clear when a road needs to be built. Because I think, as um, Ms. Jones is pointing out, you could have five lots on 10 acres, and the person who did that subdivision could sell off the lots and disappear, not be involved in the process anymore, and the individual owners are sort of stuck with figuring out who has to pay for the road. 
But that strikes me as something that we need to be much more perhaps vigilant about in our preliminary plan conditions to make it clear that the road has to be built by the initial developer or whatever the condition may be. But, it's but the record plot doesn't create a, a uh, hammer to get someone to actually build the road. And no. that's what's can, bugging me is that it sounds like you want to make it do something that it's not really. Can, can no, I just, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm I saying, I'm sorry, second. excuse me. What I'm saying is that when we sign off on it, you know that the public improvement agreement that assures that the road is going to be built is in place, or you know that the grading and the paving permits that assure that the road is going to be built are in place. Those are some of what our reviews do. As a system, that is not broken. So I'm not sure what anybody's hoping to accomplish um, in terms of taking DPS out of signing on the plat. This is not about turf. This is about Montgomery County ends up owning a right-of-way that's dedicated to the county. We look to the quality of the ownership of what we're going to be accepting and receiving it's not up to a state agency, which is effectively what park and planning is, to say to Montgomery County, this is the quality of the interest that you're going to get, and then Montgomery County has to accept it because if it's faulty, then there's a budgetary implication that the transportation department's going to have to live with or the public travel on that road will have to deal with. And these are the things that we look to. With respect to assuring that there's an orderly development and implementation of development, when we sign off on it, that plat doesn't say you have to build that road. What you know is that our signature tells you that because those, those are the things that we look at, that that road's going to be built. It, you know that that permit has been issued, and the public knows that the permit or the agreement is in place to assure that that uh, road is going to be built. Are there ways to simplify plats? The answer is yes. We've looked at some of them. We've implemented some of them. We've worked closely together. We've had a very collegial um, good relationship in working these things together, working, simplifying the notes on the plat, uh, simplifying the multiple plats process. We're totally on board with the e-plans approach. So what do you get other than creating more confusion of people and removing a protection that is in place for the public by taking the signature of the planning, the, the DPS uh, director off? You don't get anything from that, in my opinion. If you want to simplify, why does it need to go back to the board? I think that your planning directors had a, has some good thoughts on that. That would require a state law change. That could certainly simplify it. There are other things that we can do. I think that would also help to simplify it. But um, I don't think it would be good government to take DPS off, quite frankly. That's the, as candidly as I can put it. And all, all I was going to add um, was that I, I totally agree with what Diane is saying, that DPS's review of things like the um, public improvements um, guarantees is a critical part of PLATS. In fact, it's required in the code that public improvements be assured before a PLAT is approved. And I, I think it's part of what's confusing about this SRA to imply that DPS's role in PLATS, in their review of PLATS, 
should go away. It, it can't. There, there are things that have to be reviewed. Well and septic does have to be reviewed. The advantage to, that might be gained in, um, in not having a signature on the plats um, are frankly the, the times where issues as material as um, a public improvement are not the issues that are holding up the plat. They're administrative things that um, a, a note that we can't agree on, a, a note that gets put on the plat and the wording we can't agree on. It has nothing to do with the county's entitlements. It's just um, things that between um, parking planning staff and DPS staff who are all trying to make sure that the requirements are, are met, disagree on maybe the way that that is, is put on. And because there is a signature to be um, uh, put on the plat at the end, people can get entrenched and, and we hold each other up by um, arguments that are not, that have nothing to do with the material things about a plat. Um, I think that's why the, they're, we, we've had instances where we've taken a plat, we've gotten the board's approval of the plat, and between the time that we've had approvals and the time that um, uh, permitting services is able to sign off on it, think changes have been made and we've had to start the board approval process again. Um, we've had to come back and bring it back to you and say the plat changed from what we gave you. And a lot of times it's not the issues that um, are the material ones that create those sort of things. It doesn't happen a lot and we put a lot of effort when the SRA was um, introduced into trying to come up with ways to work better together. As I said before, those I don't think have had time to play out. We, we feel like we have, are taking a step in the right direction, but those are the kind of things that I see um, that, that really delay the process unnecessarily simply because of the signature being put on. I think that the, the approvals that you all have to grant, the, the things that DPS has to do as part of the plat, absolutely have to occur and, this, and they would never change. As I don't think they could change with, a, with a, an SRA. They, we have to continue to have the input that we have, but, um, but it, it doesn't always require a signature. The, the code also says that the board can do conditional approval of plats but it becomes very difficult to do a conditional approval of a plat, especially now with the new um, e-plans process we were trying to put into place. If we um, want to allow certain things to happen after the fact, like recording of documents after the fact, after you guys approve the plat, we condition it now. But the, the permitting services doesn't sign the plats until everything is completely done on that. Um, those kinds of things are, are the, having both of us sign the plat um, sometimes re results in delays because there's things that we would do that DPS wouldn't do. And you know I, I think that's the, those are the, those are the potential benefits for not having um, a signature be the way that you guys say that you've done the reviews that you you're required to do, but so, I don't 
think that you should not do those reviews. There's an axiom that bad facts make bad law. And I don't, I, I'm, I don't know the circumstances in particular that Kathy is referring to, but I do know that you, when, first of all, we have changed the process because any plat that should be coming to you now would have my signature on it already. So you would know our part is completely done. Um, Kathy began earlier that, that it's not the signatures that are holding things up. The, the things that I am aware of that have held up plats have had to do with overlapping easements. I have seen that, and we have figured out um, when it comes up, we've, we have to figure out how to resolve it. It has to be resolved. The plat should not be recorded with an overlapping easement. And you would have no way of knowing that but for the fact that my signature is on it. So, Can I ask if anyone well, has documented but, the numbers of, of types of things? That I've heard you mention some things, Kathy, and I know you mentioned the overlapping easements. Have we been tracking that? So do we have a sense in-house here of... You know, you could tell me out of 150 past plats, you know, the issues have been, you know, A, B, C, 20% this, 60% that. I don't believe we have any specific numbers, but I do think there's some disagreement on the subject of overlapping easements uh, when it comes to record plats because we've had situations arise where someone has deeded off a very small piece of property, so they have to re-record. There have been long-standing overlapping easements, and we don't see any reason why those can't go ahead and be processed. They're not changing anything that was in effect. So the, you know, there are issues that come up with these things, uh, and Ms. Conlon is exactly right about that. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, I, I definitely do believe there are developers, and we've seen it on other instances, who would sell off lots without telling prospective purchasers that there is a road or something that has to be built. Uh, and I definitely think we want to protect against that. But I guess my question would be, is there some way where we could do a condition that says no building permit can be issued for any lot in this subdivision until that road has been permitted and bonded? Because my understanding is we do wait to sign record plats until these roads have been permitted and bonded. And I think it does cause delays. Well, that sounds like an issue unto itself that deserves to be to be worked out. And I'm sorry for interrupting you, Ms. Schwartz. I just wanted to, to get a sense if we have tracked that, because I don't have any you know, clear idea of the issues that most frequently hold up a plat record. And I would be interested to know that in the future, but I, I understand what you're communicating, Rose, about that. So, I, so I, you, you get, I think this is unfortunate. I'm, I have to say I'm exceedingly disappointed sitting here with hearing the way this is being discussed because I don't, you know, the, the plats um, are the final product. We issue building permits based on, um, you know, once these lots are created, we have the ability to issue our building permits based on the creation of the lots. There are protections that are embedded in it that are not holding up the recordation of the plats. And any example that you've given, there have been other side to those facts as well, where perhaps there's been other positions advanced in the discussion. And I don't think we should have to sit here and go through those. I'm aware of that fact. And that matter was resolved on that plat. Um, and as soon as it came to my attention, Rose and I were able to resolve that issue. There are, these things are going to happen. I mean, um, the, it is difficult, there, there's an awful lot involved in the development process. And if you have any question about it, just think about Clarksburg and the, making sure that everything that needs to be caught 
is caught at the right time. You have a protection in place that keeps things like Fawcett Road from happening, that keeps things like, um, I can't think of the name of the road. It's funny, um, but historically, just on the Clarksburg issue, the finger so, was definitely pointed at the planning board as a responsibility, but. I'm not, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. I'm just trying to say that there are protections that are put in place. I meant for the protection on that. The, the, there was a reliance on what this agency is supposed to do, so it wasn't as if there was, you know, the DPS fell down on that one. No, and, and it, I don't think this is even a question of performance time either. There's an overall time issue, um, without a doubt. But, you know, I, I know what our performance time is on our turnaround of the plats, and I don't think, I don't think that's an issue. Um, I do think that as we look at, I think, what OLO did in terms of creating the chart of who's doing what, there's not a lot of overlap in the things that we are looking at. And you take us off of there, then you have 100% of responsibility to making sure that all of that is right. I'm, I mean, flat out, that's the only thing, because they're going to look to you and your signature um, for the things that DPS is looking at. Um, I, it's not broken. Th this piece of it is not what is broken. If there are pieces in how staffs work together, if we need to make clear on lead agency, if, you know, I do agree it should be administrative. I think it should be administrative off of um, the plans that are approved and that the title issue should be brought forward earlier. But I don't think that you go and create a further break to a process where that's really not the piece that is broken. Put together the other pieces. Where's, find out where the, the um, where the bottlenecks are. Let's figure out how to fix those and fix them early on. Make it administrative so that your staff can sign it. That would also be, you know, that, that would simplify. But I, I don't think that uh, taking out a clear protection for the public is the right way to go and a protection for the executive branch to know that when something's being dedicated that it has to take responsibility for that everything is in place for that dedication to occur. Well, uh, you know, it's my understanding that there's some time on this, even though the uh, hearing is is next week. I mean, I'm I'm inclined to want to explore this uh, further. I'm I'm not uh, going to pretend that I know the whys and wherefores of who did what to who, or you know, in terms of delay as attributable to refusal to sign or not. Um, but it seems like it bears further uh, examination of so we can look at some of these cases. I agree with you. It's not about turf. I just want to make sure that, and as you said, there's accountability in the appropriate place, mm -hmm. and that cuts both go both ways. And that if there's a, a way to, it just seems to me on its face, if there's a way to give you the tools that you need to insist on the improvements that the public is entitled to expect uh, that is not tied to this process, that's my instinct is that that's, uh, that's a direction we ought to go and not because it makes a, not because I'm trying to take power away from you or give it to you. It's about, you know, where does the, where is the place where that lever should, should reside but it's is also, it as part of the record plat process. But, Mr. Anderson, it's also what it tell, what puts the world on notice. And the signature of the planning board, I mean, that, that's what a record plat does. It puts the world on notice of certain things. It puts the world on notice that certain things have occurred in the proper order of things. 
and it's a trigger to other things occurring. Oh, I, I get and so it. It's just that, you know, there's the, again, notice that there are certain uh, obligations, particularly as respects these easements, is different than there's been a, there's, there's been a permit issues that indicates that some other improvement has actually been made. The fact that you, and I don't know, this is, maybe I'm not just not getting it, but I always thought the point of the land records was to show there is authorized to be a particular entity or person in this, in this location on this land and not whether or not, not to vouch for whether or not, you know, an improvement has actually been constructed. But well, it, Mr. Lieb, do you want to help me out on this? You know, it doesn't have to be constructed. I think what's important here is that if the permitting and bonding is in place, even if it isn't constructed, you now have bonding to make right. sure that it can be built by the county to their standards. And I, I really want to stress here, because I, I know Ms. Jones said she was disappointed in this conversation. Um, this was not a bill that any of us recommended be introduced, but clearly as we pay um, increasing attention to our processes, um, there, you know, we, we recognize that all of us uh, need to do these processes in a more efficient manner. I think that what OLO found, and we had many conversations with our agency and the other agencies, where we, we literally created a chart for record plats of this is what we review, this is what they review, to see where there were overlaps. There were a couple, there just weren't many, and the OLO report calls that out. So I don't think any of us are, are saying that we want to bear responsibility for these roadways. Uh, but I think the question you're trying to get to uh, is, simply the timing, the measures that we are setting forth now is trying to look at some of these issues earlier might resolve some of this. I do know that in other jurisdictions, for, and we need to look further into this, it's not taking the amount of time it takes here to get record plats done. So I think that that's what the council member was trying to address and I think it's what we're trying to address. And we, you said earlier that yes, maybe we just need to spend more time looking into it. And as Ms. Conlin and Mr. Russ point out, we have, we, we just started e-plans and we really um, uh, have started other efforts to try and reduce the time. The uh, reducing the number of notes on a plat from 35 to half of that is certainly a significant step forward. Doesn't mean you won't have a lot of debates about the other 18 notes, but you know, we don't know yet because we haven't had any chance to draw data. Um, how much what we've already done may reduce the time involved. And my point is, because I am a huge proponent of streamlining, and Rosa and I have worked quite closely together, as well as our staffs, on trying to minimize the amount of time that it takes to get through a process without um, giving up things that are important in terms of protections. So this is not where the problem is. The problems that are involved come up elsewhere in the process. That's what we have to identify, and that's what we have to work on, and that's what we have been working on. So, but, but this bill well, is not streamlining. Okay, well, without making a judgment about the extent to which it does or does not occur that there are d delays resulted from people, you know, just digging in their heels on, on uh, 
issues that are getting in the way of uh, plats being signed promptly. What's, what would be wrong with uh, providing for some uh, process to come back to the board so if people can't agree, they can publicly have an opportunity to bring it back to the board and resolve those differences, whether it's on the government side or whether it's on the applicant side. So if the applicant is having a problem getting, getting resolution, that they can escalate the issue back to say, you know, this is really something that's not uh, appropriate for holding up a plat. So I think that... Um, or you could come back to the board and say, listen, this applicant hasn't, you know, satisfied this I, condition I, that we think is reasonable. Well, first of all, you're going to... I think that, that Rose, uh, excuse me, not Rose's, Gwen's ideas and thoughts on making sure that, okay, what's going into the certified site plan and then can we get to a point where the plat, although I... There, that the plat reflects exactly what's on the certified site plan, um, it, capturing that better, and we have to see how that happens. It's, it's not the way things happen now, so we need to see how things are happening. Although I'm not aware of many differences between plats and preliminary plans, but if there's a problem, let's address the problem. Let's not, I mean, because, and figure out where that is happening. I haven't heard that there have been a lot of, of those kinds of issues coming up. Um, with respect to identifying, to me, this is also a lead agency thing, because there are things, like a recent email that I saw where, and, you know, I said to my staff that this is really park and planning's call. If they are satisfied about the authority under which a subdivision is taking place, we will defer to that. And I think that a better approach for us to do is to look at the listing that OLL has in its report Let's refine it, and let's the things that are clearly us shouldn't have to go back. We say yes, we say no. It's not for you to resolve it because it relates to things within our authority. If it's anything, you know, that the things that are within park and plannings, you say yes, you say no, whatever. We don't have, we won't have a, a dog in that fight, so to well, speak. Well, but the lead agency, I agree that it is a lead agency issue, but that, that suggests that, you know, if you object to us signing the plat, we're not going to sign the plat. I mean, well, it, that doesn't cut you out of the process you, just you, because you don't affix Diane Schwartz-Jones to the signature to the okay. Mylar. Except for that under state law, too, don't, under the, the state regulations and the uh, MDE regulations, a, a plat, ha, the subdivision has to be approved by DPS. It's the delegated authority, which is DPS, for the well and septic and the water sewer issue. I'm just going to ask our council, so, does that necessarily have to mean that they have to sign the plat? I'm not familiar with how it, I'm not actually familiar with that law. Um, I note, I think, as the chairman did, the Ms. Schwartz-Jones is saying it has to be approved. I don't know if that means it has to be signed. So that authority. the subdivision has to be approved. So I think, the, I don't know if that means it has to be signed or not, and I'm happy to go away and, and look at that. I mean, we I, I get letters from agencies, all of them, yours included, as part of the development review process, and they say, we insist on X and Y and Z, don't approve it without this. And in every Without exception, since I've been on this board, we have deferred to the judgment of your agency and other executive branch agencies. So I'm not quite getting why it's so critical, this issue of who's signature on it, except that to the extent that, you know, 
it, which does it or doesn't not belong at this place in the process, this, which I don't um, have any religious views on. I'm just trying to understand why you're so adamant that it's got to be signed by. If I if I may, um, the, uh, um, Mr. Chairman, the um, you asked me earlier whether there were, what the sort of purpose of the plat was, and is there an, a requirement for all the agreements to be in place and so forth. Um, I, I think. You know, what I understand Ms. Schwartz-Jones to be saying is that this is an important moment to make sure that everything is squared up before allowing things to move forward because once a plat is recorded, certain further things can happen uh, that, you know, it, it, it's preferable that they're all, it's preferable that this is all squared away. And so, you know, it's, it's a very pejorative term, but the plat filing is, you know, a bottleneck point or the plat approval is a bottleneck point where you can get a lot of things squared away and, and you know the, the whole preliminary plan process is loaded with all of these boxes that have to be checked and, and, the, and the, so that's sort of the nature of the process as to the narrower question of what the law requires um, with Ms. Conlon's help there is a section in the law in the in the subdivision regs 5037G that says that prior to the recording of any approved final plat and it's prior to the recording um, the developer, the subdivider, has to provide all of the necessary agreements, um, including permits, bonds, uh, surety, required for final proper completion and installation of all public improvements. So there is a requirement for all of those agreements, the bonds and so forth, to be in place, and this is in the law prior to recording. So that's there, and, and, you know, and I think the question is, is it important for that to be, there, there's, I think, a separate policy question of whether it's important for those things to be in place um, before the plat is signed off on. So, but what is the point of a signature? The point of a signature for you all would be that when you see my signature on there, you know that all the things that we're supposed to be looking for have occurred. Because otherwise, you're going to have to get your checklist, you're going to have to make sure that all these things have happened now and rely, I don't know who you're going, you rely on your staff, I guess, to make sure that all these things have happened that are within our control. It's my signature, and it's not that it's, whoever it is, I may not be here tomorrow, who knows, whoever it is, that when you're looking at the DPS signature, it's not that, again, it's not about TERP, it's about, the, the, that is the trigger to you to know that this is a plat that is record, ready to go into the land records. It's ready to be recorded so that all of the other things that happen from it happen. It is, it is a, a very important control point, in my opinion. And I don't see where, th this is not the piece that is broken. And why you would take away an important control point when that's not what is broken, um, I, I don't understand it. I just don't. I think that you ought to look to what is broken. How do we streamline? How do we improve? And the e-plans, I think, is a huge uh, it's going to be a game changer, as um, we many of us have said repeatedly. Uh, it, the ter in terms of the timing, um, you, that will be very, very evident. Uh, we have reports. We do tracking. I know what our time is. Our time is quite good for the turnaround. If if there's a holdup for what is a specious reason, let's identify that. We'll fix that problem. But you you don't remove an important control to fix something that is a management or problem that needs to be addressed and the management issues might be on both sides there there may be I mean 
it, it could be on both sides, whether it's DPS or whether it's park and planning. I'm sure that there's places where both of our staffs um, well, uh, undoubtedly, and I, I agree that it's not a turf issue. It's a question of how do you surface these, how do you create a mechanism to surface these issues to the extent that there are, whether they're minor or major, whether they're frequent or infrequent, the times when that's used as like a leverage point when it should have been resolved earlier in the process. That's where I'm coming from. Anybody else have a view on this, Mayor? I mean, what do you think we should, what do you think our recommendation should be? I mean, I'm sort I honestly, I'm sort of ambivalent about this. I understand what you're saying. I respect the fact that you have an important role to play in making sure these improvements get made and to resolve it, especially resolving the conflicts between uh, easements. But at the same time, in principle, I think that, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be a way to, to allow you to accomplish that goal without creating the because we do hear stories about things getting tied up where, you know, applicants and the different agencies are all, you know, have maybe sometimes two or three different opinions about what is should be required. Amy? May I, um, may I interject one other thing? Um, I was just discussing this with Ms. Rubin. There is a, um, you know, dedication of, right-of-way is a two-way street, no pun intended. Somebody has to dedicate it, but it also has to be accepted. Um, and I've had occasion to have to look at case law on this. The, the signature on the plat, is, as I understand it, in, in DPS's practice at least now, is there indication of acceptance of the right-of-way? And that's potentially legally significant and potentially a reason that you want to ensure that DPS is signing the plats. And in the absence of that, there might be arguments that the dedication, for whatever reason, wasn't accepted. Why that might be, argue, why that might be argued at some point down the road, I'm not sure. But I've seen stranger things happen um, around these types of issues. So I think, um, and I'm happy to go away and, and sort of look into that more definitively if that would be helpful to the board. Um, but uh, that is just one other one other thing to consider here. In light of, of um, the discussion, I'm inclined to um, accept Mr. Russ and, and Ms. Collins' recommendation that maybe this is something that we should table to see what the effect of the streamline is having. Because if this is not the issue, mm -hmm. then I don't think we should be attacking at this point. We should attack what the issue is. And I think if we have some more time to take a look at that, that might give us the answer. I agree with that, but I still would like to know more, you know, if we can track some of the specific issues so that we have a better oh, sense. Yeah. You know, if, if it's a recurring theme, it's easier to deal with. And, and I still at this point don't understand wh what the issues are and how frequently they occur. Yeah, so I think if we could um, say in the letter that it's not just that we think that we're working through some other things that are going on then we want to see how that shakes out, but also to, to drill down a little bit to understand what the, the extent to which this is or is not a, a problem, some of the issue, statutory issues that you uh, mentioned, um, and that we should uh, revisit the issue later. Yeah. That was a... Well, you can make a motion. Mary made a motion. And inclusive of the chairman's comments, I second that. 
Yeah. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Thank you. Thank you for coming down. The record will reflect it's the first time since I've been the chairman that we're actually behind. But it's all Diane's fault, so. <laughs> no, she, she showed up on time. See, this is why I schedule these things this way, so if we, we can get a little bit ahead on some things, and we have plenty of time to talk about things that are more interesting, like our relationship with DPS. Yeah. Let's take a minute.
Okay. Um, go right ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. I, okay, it is officially afternoon. Um, my name is Andrea Gillis. I'm with Area 2. Um, we will be, we are here to present planning board agenda item number eight. It's the first work session for the Aspen Hill Minor Master Plan Amendment. Um, I'm also here with Luis Estrada, the urban designer on the project, and Aaron Zimmerman, our transportation planner, who will both at different times um, be presenting some material to, um, to you all. So just a general overview of the presentation today, we're going to go through some of the larger themes that we received from the public testimony, um, either whether it be at the public hearing, we also received quite um, a bit of information through email and comments um, during the open um, public record. We're gonna discuss some recommended edits, um, then review again some of the planning board actions um, that we're hoping to accomplish today to move into the next phase of the project, and then we'll discuss next steps. And really what we'll be referring to today, for the most part, is the issues matrix that you all received in your packets. Um, it was quite a lengthy matrix, um, a lot of detailed information. What we wanted to do is there, were, there, were, there was a lot of information that came out at the public hearing and then the subsequent uh, emails that we received from a lot of the community, um, either residents, business owners, interested parties. So we wanted to be able to respond to a lot of those issues and actually have it in black and white for people to review. What we, today, what we hope to do with this presentation is, and through this work session, is go through in more detail the ones that we think that actually need or will result in some edits, and that potentially result in some edits in the document. Um, so if there's anything that we don't cover in this presentation that you wanted to bring up in the matrix, um, please, please let us know. But we'll be focusing on the items that we felt were actually going to result in some potential recommended edits um, that move us into the planning board draft. Um, so I wanted to, we're gonna go through process, market analysis, mobility, general land use, property specific issues, more so the zoning, and then the design guidelines. And this pretty much follows the, um, the outline of the matrix. Um, I wanted to start with the process, um, that one, there was a lot of discussion in the process that dealt with the timing of this minor amendment and moving forward or not. Um, and I, you know, I, from what we've heard and from what we understand, council still wants us to proceed with this item. It's been in our work program, it's been affirmed in our work program, so we're moving forward with the minor master plan. Um, the matrix, matrix issues that corresponded to process were the first two. Um, so if you all don't have any issues with those, we'd like to move on to the market analysis piece. Um, it's on pages, um, it's just, it's on the first page, um, numbers one and two. We feel that the staff responses covered any of the issues that were addressed, but if there's anything, any question that you had or any other issues that you'd like to raise, um, we, could, we could do that now. You're under item under all on, the process ones. Yep, on page yeah. one, worksheet page number one, they're items number one and two. Okay, I'm fine with all that. Anyone else? Okay. 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 And so I want to say too, even before yes. you go on, I wanted to say this. This made it so easy, the way that you guys prepared the matrix of the issues and the staff response. I really appreciate the detail in it. Oh, great. Really Thank good. you. I'm glad it was, it was easy to understand. Um, and then we'll also move on to, this is a little bit of out, out of order in the market analysis, or in the, the matrix, but we'll move on to the market analysis because this is another area that we feel that it wouldn't have necessarily led to 
any edits in the plan itself. Um, but there were quite a few, there were some issues that came up, but again, we feel that we provided some pretty lengthy and additional details as responses um, to each of those issues. Um, we will make a couple very minor edits to a couple of the tables in the matrix, just clarifying information, but it's, it's non-substantive. Um, so at this time, staff recommends um, that there be no additional edits made to the market port market analysis port market analysis portion of the appendix, um, and those were issues numbers 22 through 25, and they're on page. It starts on the very bottom of worksheet page 10 and goes to page 12. So if you all don't have any additional comments or that or any additional feedback, we can move on to the next portion. Y'all are comfortable with those? Okay. So moving on to mobility. So I'll take you to page there. It starts on page two, the top of page two, and there um, the mobility section addresses issues that were brought up in um, issues three through 11. And at this point, I will turn the presentation over to Aaron, who will go into further detail. I mean, just so you know, as we can follow along, we've included the, the issue number and the page number um, that we're specifically talking to. So hopefully that will help keep you oriented to the matrix. For the record, my name is Aaron Zimmerman. I'm a transportation planner with Area 2. Um, now, staff received uh, a number of comments from the public and also from uh, MCDOT and SHA uh, regarding the traffic analysis portion of the uh, of the of the draft plan. Now, with the first bullet, um, we received uh, questions uh, regarding what was the background year that you guys studied, what were the background developments, was uh, the Home Depot expansion was that uh, included in your analysis, and also what were your assumptions with regard to the driveway to Connecticut Avenue. Um, with regards to, um, you know, signalized, full movement, unsignalized, you know, what were you guys assuming? And we had actually had a lot of that information in some of our earlier tables um, in previous uh, uh, staff reports that were brought to the board and in presentations to the public. And so what staff was recommending was actually bringing back those more detailed tables um, into this document. Um, we had actually left out a lot of that information because it was in the text of of the actual draft plan, and it may have been a little bit overwhelming for the average reader to to, to go through. Um, now, related to that, uh, staff is recommending moving the traffic analysis portion of the draft plan, which is currently in the text, moving that into the appendix with the market analysis and other types of supporting documentation. Um, all of our recommendations would still stay in the in the report, so. So yeah, so the, uh, we we had want we wanted to put that information actually in the in our first staff report, or I'm sorry, first staff draft um, to you guys, so that uh, you know the public would not have to dig through you know uh, the appendix and and actually in the printed copy of of our plan of the staff draft, it actually is the appendices are not there, so um, we wanted to make it as easy as possible for people to go through. It was a wise decision. <laughs> So I guess then the question is, if, if, if for you all to consider is adding more details to the table to address some of the issues that have been brought up, and by then by doing that, adding more details and, and um, the additional inf background information that we do have, 
is whether or not then we move that portion of the plan to the appendix. I said I vote yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm hearing consensus on that. Okay, great. Um, now moving on to the second bullet, um, regarding the uh, pedestrian accident data that we used, we got a number of comments um, asking, you know, you guys only cite two pedestrian accidents in the staff draft, yet I, you know, the citizen took a look at the, uh, the SHA study and we see, you know, many more than that. Um, just to clarify, in our staff draft, we had only, we, we had focused our, our efforts and our attention at the intersection of Aspen Hill and Connecticut and, you know, from the time period of 2005 to 2009, which is, you know, the, the, the time, the time frame that that study was done, um, there were, there were only two, uh, two collisions with pedestrians, however, there was a much larger corridor that was studied in that study um, in which there were about 23 accidents with pedestrians, um, many of which actually occurred south of our study area and uh, SHA identified, you know, the main reasons being uh, the numerous driveways that are along there and also um, a lot of mid-block crossings by pedestrians. So um, what staff is recommending is, you know what, actually including a lot of the informa information and kind of, you know, make it clear for the public, you know, to, to understand, you know, it would just be a couple sentences we would add. Uh, we would add a little more context as to, you know, what that study was about and which areas um, it analyzed data from. Seems like y'all are agreeable to that. If we add in some additional information, just to clarify moving forward. Okay. Uh, now moving on to the third bullet item, um, there was a comment. Uh, there was a comment from MCDOT requesting that um, in certain situations in our in our uh, staff draft we should include the phrase, you know, subject to MCDOT approval, um, uh, mostly with regards to the driveway, the right in, right out onto um, Aspen Hill. Um, and so we, we took a look through the staff draft and we actually find a, a few locations in which um, either subject to SHA approval or subject to MCDOT approval would be appropriate, um, you know, because ultimately they're the agencies that would, you know, allow that. Isn't that standard, though? I mean, sort of redundant. We know that all of those road improvements are subject to that one. I don't think we say that as a general rule, do we? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Glenn Craig with area two. Um, we thought when we wrote this public hearing draft that those things went without saying, but apparently right. not to some people. Well, <laughs> I guess I'm concerned that if we start doing that, that there's an implication that if we don't say that, it's not subject to the approval, whereas, so, so the higher authority, and my point is acknowledging, as we have always done, right. that the road improvements are subject to their approval. I think it would be a wrong legal thing to do to, to start okay. specifying which ones are and aren't. That's my opinion. Is there some place that we might just put an overall statement, you know, that clarifies that or... I don't, I don't know why it was such a big concern. Is there any requirement for us to put that in a master plan when it's the standard order of things? There's no. not a requirement to put it in a master so plan, but if it. putting it in the master plan wouldn't, you know, wouldn't divest DOT of the right to approve right-of-ways as described in other master plans, but, but I think that your thought about it being extraneous is probably right. Uh, I would leave it to the board, though. It wouldn't, it wouldn't affect their, their legal right. We, we have, uh, I haven't looked at it recently, but there is language at the beginning of our plans which is basically a notice to the reader about things you ought to be aware of, such, such as these diagrams are illustrative and that kind of thing. We could add a sentence that, you know, well, the various approvals are 
involve other agencies. If that's the case, I would make it standard to all master plans and make it be right. a generic enough statement that we know it's inclusive, even though right. we know already that it is. We can add that to the boilerplate for all plans. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, moving on to the fourth bullet item regarding access management, we had received a comment from MCDOT. Um, they, they had seen in one of our um, in one of our recommendations that uh, uh, access management should be uh, implemented uh, along Connecticut Avenue. And MCDOT uh, mentioned that the, you know they believe it should also be along Aspen Hill. Um, we were not purposely uh, excluding Aspen Hill. We were just um, taking the recommendation from the SHA pedestrian audit study. Um, but we, we concur. There are a lot of driveways along Aspen Hill Road. And, you know, as development comes in, we would, you know, certainly seek to, to um, consolidate those driveways. So, um, you know, staff is recommending that we, you know, just add, add, that, to the, add that phrase to the recommendation. Um, now on to the fifth and last bullet. Um, we, so right now we have a section in the draft plan um, regarding the TPAR payment. Uh, staff is actually recommending that we add um, a, a few sentences regarding the LATR and the need for a potential traffic study. Because um, regardless of what comes in on this site, you know, we will be re requiring a traffic study, um, assuming it, it meets the threshold of 30 trips for a traffic study. Um, and we will be, you know, when those developments are under review, we will be requesting that the applicant mitigate their impacts. And so we thought it was important to, to add uh, a couple sentences regarding this um, because there are a number of development scenarios that could come in, um, whether it comes in as a site plan, which would come through us, or whether it would uh, come in as a conditional use. We just wanted to make it clear that a traffic study, in all likelihood, will be um, analyzed for the local area test in this case. It, it might be a little bit redundant, much like the other uh, issue yeah, we talked about, because we kind of know that, but the well, comment The, other, the other issue on that kind of thing is when you start talking about specific, very, uh, very specific requirements of existing traffic tests, that you're open to the possibility that those could change fundamentally. Uh, maybe not even that far, not too long from now, certainly within the life of this plan. So, you know, I would be reluctant to, to call out that kind of thing in any detail. Obviously, they're, you know, you're going to have to comply with whatever traffic rules are in, are in effect at the time. So could we, if we could keep it as general as possible, I guess that's my thought there. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So those were the, actually out of the mobility section, those were the items or the issues that we wanted to highlight and we thought that there may be some areas where we could potentially make some edits to the plan. Um, there are, the issues are from number three, actually on, starting on page two through issue number 11. Um, if there's anything, any of those other issues that jumped out at you when you were going through the matrix that you wanted us to further clarify, we'd be happy to do that right now. Um, but if not, we can move on to the next section. Okay. Thank you. 
So moving on to general land use, which starts at the very top of worksheet page six. It's issue item number 12, actually 12 through 15. The main topics or the main issues that came up um, under the general land use category really addressed community character development pattern and different potential uses on the site. There was a lot of discussion about the character of the area, the suburban nature, concern about it, you know, urbanizing too much. Um, looking at the development pattern, there was concern over a regional draw. And I just wanted to point out that there's a lot of language in the plan, and I think it's easier because the plan did get a little, it can get a little lengthy and there's a lot to read, that sometimes we forget some of the, um, at the beginning of the section, or the beginning of the plan, what we discuss as our goals and our vision for the plan area in the overarching perspective. So I just wanted to go through and clarify that some of the language that is already incorporated in the plan, and we really don't, the plan doesn't speak to a regional draw. There's a lot of concern over that, and there isn't that language in the plan that speaks to that. It really speaks to facilitating the enhancement of Aspen Hill as a suburb where people can live, shop, work, and walk to community amenities. There's also language that we want to look at or allow for potential for a greater mix of uses over time for the benefit of the surrounding communities. And then there's also a lot of language that includes, um, you know, language about strong design principles, improved connectivity, distinctive architecture, local identity, and sustainable development. Um, because there was so much discussion about the character and the development pattern, we wanted to, staff wanted to ask you all if you thought that there were any areas in the plan that we could clarify the intent, um, add additional language, if there were any edits that you found that needed to be made, um, any of the language strengthened, and we'd be open to considering that and working on some of the language if you felt that there was any, any additional um, text that could have been included to better explain the intent of the overall um, development pattern for the area. Well, I take it what you're getting at is that um, it's not exactly neighborhood serving in the sense that like Montgomery Hills, you know, right. that little retail center is, mm -hmm. but it's also not, you know, um, downtown Silver Spring. Right. Where So, uh, and I think that you alluded to that in the, in, uh, the staff memo, it's, which I'm not finding it right now, talking about how well, it's not just this neighborhood, it's also surrounding neighborhoods. Correct. So it's kind of this intermediate Right. Thing. It's So it's, I mean, this commercial area that the minor master plan amendment finds itself within is, it's not just serving for that immediate neighborhood or those immediately surrounding neighborhoods. It's really the Aspen Hill neighborhood in general, and there are there is already a draw from larger areas. Um, so we have to take that into consideration as well. Um, so we tried to balance that discussion about, yes, serving the immediate neighborhood, but as well it's it's at a scale that also serves some of the surrounding communities as well. And that pattern has already been established. Yeah, what did the retail study say about this, about the relevant uh, area? The trade area? Yeah. It did say that there was still, um, there was a market for additional retail within the trade area. Um, there was a probably there was still a market for some smaller scale medical uses. Um, 
the the housing was in question. Um, but as I mean, far as, as far as geographic scope for of the of the rel the the market, like where would we expect? Oh, maybe where you we could would describe more specifically where, not just in terms of well, if you're doing a retail study, you'd like draw a circle around, mm -hmm. you know, with a whatever number of mile radius, right. but but in light of the existing retail centers that also exist, you know, mm -hmm. where is where would you expect um, the customers for this uh, to area from. to come from? To come from. I think they were coming. Oh, yeah. Right, under 13. Uh, just for the record, uh, Rick Liu, um, you asked uh, where the customers would come from, and it depends on the retail category for uh, things that are considered shoppers good, like uh, like general merchandise um, or you know electronics or um, you know uh, sporting goods. You know, we for for this particular site, we define it as a 15-minute drive time. Um, we we I, I tend not to like I tend not to want to use a mile or like a radius of, of miles because drive times are usually um, sort of more the constraining factor for um, you know whether a customer likes likes to go and uh, for more convenience goods like groceries or uh, like a CVS or Walgreens we define it as five minutes. Yeah, I was just thinking though more in terms of bumping into other retail uh, centers of retail activity. That you know, why would you drive 15 minutes, you know, if you were in Glenmont to go to Aspen Hill as opposed to driving to Wheaton, for example, or you know, you start bumping into Rockville, and uh, you know, if you went to the, in the to the west. Sure, sure. I mean, um, usually, and this is kind of a complicated sort of concept, but um, very rarely, you know, if let's say you live in Glenmont, um, and let's say you know hypothetically there was a Target there and there was a Target at Aspen Hill, you would not go to the Target and Glenmont 100% of the time. You would probably go there uh, just based off proximity. Let's uh, say 70% of the time and remaining 30% of the time to buy the same types of goods. You may go somewhere else. Um, either it's just for price comparison, maybe things are out of stock. Um, that that's kind of a, a general sort of retail principle. It does start to abut uh, certain other retail centers, and that's usually accounted for when we define the retail trade areas themselves. Um, the ULI um, typically defines uh, shoppers' good trade areas as around 30 minutes, um, but that can that's sort of a national average. Um, that's for places where development is more sparse. Um, because Aspen Hill is abutting so many um, places that are retail centers like Rockville Pike or Wheaton, uh, we decided to um, reduce that drive time to 15 minutes um, to just kind of get a better uh, representation of where the customers come from. All right. Well, my I suggestion would just be describe the, air, the roughly speaking the geographic area you would expect to be the the sort of uh, uh, you know the, in the real world what would the market be. And whether or not you think that that's, uh, you know, because the comments here are talking about, well, don't make it a destination shopping area. So if you could address that by saying, well, we expect the, that the market is going to be the following, roughly speaking, it will primarily be the following neighborhoods or, or, or area, and we think that it's not a problem or it's, a, it's a, actually a good thing if it actually draws some people from beyond that area or... No, we think that the plans recommendation are designed to make sure that it doesn't become a major 
destination shopping or whatever you want to I mean, characterize it. It does seem like you started to get at that with saying it's not a neighborhood retail. It's not a local neighborhood retail, so there are certain definitions that go with size and type, and, and I presume that's what you were headed towards. I would just yeah. be Just explain be what you had in mind with this. Yeah, I would just be wary of, may, of, of sort of saying, you're not going to get anyone beyond this because shopping draws people for various reasons, and it's not just proximity. <laughs> it could be that because there is an anchor store in something, some other mix, there might be a unique type of store that people are going to come from across. The, and it doesn't matter the size of the store. Right. I know I'll go places for one little thing. that I, I don't have to tell everybody what it is, but no, drive out <laughs> way to Damascus for one little thing, and there's only one little right. tiny little store. And well, that's... Plus, you know, location, I can too, draw. because if you're I, sitting on a major street like that and if you travel to and from that as your daily, you know, your daily work route, you might stop in there as opposed to, say, if there was a target there as opposed to yeah. going over to, uh, to Wheaton yeah. because it's not in your yeah. normal It market. is. Yeah. And I understand what the chair is saying. Just, just don't say you haven't designed just, it to be a regional right. draw. Just right. think about how you want to articulate what okay. the goal is okay. in terms I can of, yeah. I can speak to this from personal experience because, as you know, I live in Aspen Hill, and I live like f maybe four or five blocks from the Rock Creek Village Center at Bower and Norbeck. That would be our neighborhood center. But I can tell you that my wife and I don't just shop there, even though it's a little further to go to the Leisure World Center or the Aspen Hill Center because, you know, maybe something's on sale at the Giant that's not on sale at the Safeway, or we want to go to the Chipotle or the Five Guys or the Pet Boutique in Aspen Hill, and that's not in our neighborhood center. We do this all the time. We shop at all three of that, the Leisure World Center as well. There, it's, it's, things are more fluid than, than some people understand. <laughs> the benefit of a free market and competition. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> okay. So we'll look through um, some of the language and see if there are any um, edits that can be made to further clarify um, the intent. And then moving on to the property specific issues. Um, this is on page seven and nine of the worksheet or seven through nine of the worksheet. It's actually starting at the very bottom of um, page seven. It's item number 16. Um, and then covers through um, page nine of the worksheet. Um, what we're going to discuss more in detail are the issues that came up in um, items number 16.1 and 16.2. As you all are very well aware, there's been a lot of discussion about what the zoning should be on the northern side of Aspen Hill Road. Um, we're going to focus on the northern side of Aspen Hill Road. We didn't receive any comments about the recommended zoning on the south side, so we're assuming that there is, everyone is comfortable with that proposed zoning on the south side. So that's why today we're just focusing on the north side. Um, and it's that um, all of those properties that are included within the northern side of the, um, of the minor master plan amendment area. And as you recall, our proposal is to recommend one zone, one consistent zone for those properties. Um, the plan recommendation is currently the CRT with a total FAR of 1.5. And then we received testimony at the public hearing um, about a request to change that zoning to at least specifically on the Vitro property to GR um, in the shorter term, and then a potential for a CRT floating zone in the long term. 
And then they got into, the request got into details about, you know, height and densities and that, um, which you all received as well. Um, there also was the issue of the 100-foot no-build zone was brought up. We'll get into that in a little bit further detail when we go through the design guidelines. Um, and then there's also many individuals who made the request for a CRN zone, um, a commercial residential neighborhood zone um, on those properties to allow for a smaller scale type of mixed-use development on the north side of Aspen Hill Road. So, and if we did nothing as of, you know, nothing through this amendment, just let the conversion um, take over on October 31st, this would, the the large port, the Vitro BAE property would be rezoned to EOF, the corner would go to CRT, and then there would still be where the parking is, it would revert to, well, it would um, retain its R90 zoning. So we have a lot of options on this, on the north side of Aspen Hill Road. So what staff did is we put together some, some spreadsheets that looked at some pros and cons and really allowed us to analyze the different zones. We've actually been doing this, this is what we've been doing for months now actually, before we even came up and, and with the CRT recommendation was looking at all of the available options of zones and what the pros and cons were for each of those zones. So these were included in the packet as well, and to a certain degree, you've seen these before because we've t we've talked ab um, about them at the briefings um, and subsequent meetings. So we just wanted to go over some of some of the highlights again. So just to provide you with our rationale and for the CRT recommendation, and then looking in further detail at some of the other options that were put on the table for the north side of Aspen Hill Road. Um, one of the most significant differences between the zones, so what we did is we looked at all of the commercial residential zones and we looked at all of the employment zones that could be applicable. There is an LSC zone, the Life Science Center zone within um, the employment zones, but it's really not applicable in this case. Um, so we didn't add it to the spreadsheet. Um, so we were looking at the CRN, the CRT, the CR, the NR, the GR, and the EOF. Um, like I said, the EOF is what the, the, a big portion of the area would convert to. So one of the significant differences between the zones that flagged for us right, you know, early on was that obviously in the commercial residential zones, any type of residential is permitted. So you have that flexibility to allow for residential. Um, there's concern about, you know, compatibility with the surrounding neighborhoods, the existing neighborhoods. Some people were interested in multifamily housing or townhomes the commercial residential zones allow for those types of uses. In the employment zones, it's really more for focus, it's focused less on the possibility of developing um, housing. So they're all limited um, in the employment zones. Um, all of the different housing categories are a limited option. And for most of these, if not all, um, I'd have to double check it, what the limited, um, what the L means is that it's limited, the, the site would be limited to 30% of the total gross floor area of the development would be limited to that particular housing component. So if we're talking about, you know, a potential mix of uses as we move through the future, as this area evolves, we thought that the, the commercial residential zones would be more appropriate um, moving forward. There's also been a lot of discussion about, well, why don't we just keep it EOF? You can do office, you can do some kind of residential, you can do that 30% residential. 
um, why don't we just leave um, a large portion of the area EUF and not even worry about it? Well, a lot of it was a lot of things came up. A lot of potential alternative uses came up about senior living, um, assisted living. Those aren't allowed in the EOF zone. So, just straight out, you wouldn't be able to do those types of uses should um, they become feasible to develop in the future in this site. So that was one of the the considerations that we had when um, looking at our recommended zoning category. Then we also looked at. And again, this isn't an exhaustive, exhaustive list of all the permitted uses. These are just some of highlighting, one, some of the major differences between the zones um, in the use categories and also incorporating some of the, the uses that were brought up through the process is what people would like to see on within the, the minor master plan amendment area. Um, the differences in the medical and, and dental are really when you get into the clinics that have more than four practitioners. The CRN um, zone limits that. Um, and then also in the NR zone, it's a conditional use. Um, so you would just have to go through additional processes in those zones, whereas they're outright permitted in, say, CRT um, and some of the other zones, the other employment zones. Um, and then I'd also like to point out that in the, um, actually don't bring it up here, but the medical dental laboratory um, is not permitted in CRN and NR as well. And so those are some of the uses that people talked about that potentially could be incorporated into a larger development, and they're not permitted in some of the zones that have been recommended. Um, under office and professional, research and development is not permitted in CRN um, or the RN or GR, actually. Um, and that's one of the, you know, people were really, there's talk about a satellite campus for maybe education or some type of hospital satellite campus. Um, depending on the use, some of those could fall within research and development. So that limits your potential uses on the site um, if you went with something other than CRT. And then, of course, the big category that we've, we've all discussed, and I just wanted to clarify that in any time that you develop, you potentially would develop a combination retail, it is going to have to, it gets developed under a, a, um, a, a conditional use. So it's not permitted outright in any of the zones. It's a conditional use across the board. Um, but it is not permitted in CRN, um, and it is not permitted in EOF, but it is permitted in all the other zones that we have in the, um, the use matrix. And then another one of the, really what we were, when we were looking at, thinking about how, you know, some of the, the realistic market options in this area um, and looking at you know feasibility for development on the site we started looking at you know in more detail some of the retail options and what the different zones um, what the impact of the different zones have on the retail options and we you'll see you can see that when there's a real change in how the different zones perform um, when you reach the 50,000 square foot threshold for retail. So it becomes a limited use in some areas, a permitted use in some areas, and then just not at all allowed in some of the other um, zoning categories. So anything above 50,000 square feet is not allowed in the CRN zone. It's a limited use in CRT, which I believe in this case means that you, it's a site plan is required um, for the area. Um, and then NR and GR, it is permitted outright. So that starts to, when we think about some of the, the uses that have been talked about for this area, for example, a grocery store, um, 
the, the research team looked at and compiled a list of, you know, comparative um, grocery stores, suburban grocery stores, and many of them are greater than 50,000 square feet. So a big concern for us is, you know, if, if on the north side of Aspen Hill Road you could get an anchor, um, there was an anchor that, could, you know, wanted to develop there, you're decreasing the flexibility of your options if you only, if you limit the retail that you can have in that area to 50,000 square feet. So these are all some of the considerations that we took in specifically with uses and just comparing the options um, and what zone seemed to be most appropriate um, in this area. And this is looking at just uses. This is one of the, uh, what I laid out are the reasons why we still recommend the CRT zone to provide the flexibility that we think is necessary for this to successfully redevelop. Um, but we also took into consideration the form and design and how this could redevelop and listened to a lot of concerns that people had about how this area could develop. And we think that the CRT zone also really addresses some of the, that form and function um, that we want to take into consideration when there is redevelopment and incorporate some design standards um, that would um, allow for compatible development in the future. So that moves us on to the development standards comparison matrix um, where I wanted to highlight some of the, the differences between the zones um, moving forward and sort of what our rationale again was when we decided on ultimately the CRT zone. Um, there's a wide range in differences in maximum total density. Um, so as you can see that, you know, the CRN and the NRs are on the smaller scale. Um, whereas if you go all the way to, to CR, you can get a max 8.0. Um, and then also in EUF, you can get it. Actually, I think the way that the, the site was going to convert, um, the, the conversion was actually going to have an FAR of 3.0. So if we did nothing today, there was actually going to be a pretty significant FAR on the site, um, on the Vitro BAE site, um, which is the largest um, property on that northern side of, the, um, of Aspen Hill Road. And then one of a, a I'm sorry, I forgot what yeah. was the original staff draft recommendation on the FAR for under CRT. One point five. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, with a commercial um, FAR of 0.5 and a residential of 1.0. So then, as we started moving down and moving through the 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 requirements, um, we we got to parking setbacks, and I think a significant. This is when you really start getting into form and how you want new development to be, what, what, what form do you want and where do you want it to be placed on the site um, or within the area? Um, so we started looking at, looking at the setbacks. The CR zones have requirements that the parking must be behind the front building line. So what this gets at is that you can't have parking between um, the front building and the street. We've talked a lot about in this plan how we want to try to make this more gear this area more toward a pedestrian-friendly environment um, to start moving away from it being really what it is today is completely auto-dominated for the most part, um, start to transition the, the form and function of this area. Um, and this is one of the ways to do that is where how you address the building placement and where you put the parking. In the employment zones uh, for the parking, there is not that requirement. It's just the, the landscaping and screening requirements that kick in. Um, in the EOF, you could make that requirement through a master plan. 
recommendation um, if you wanted to go that route. But actually, if it's site plan is required, the planning board could waive those requirements. So it's possible, but not as sure as if you went with the, the CR zones. And then building orientation. Where do you want your build? How do you want your building oriented on the site um, or within the area? Um, there's the requirement that you have entrance facing the street or an open space. Um, and those are required in the commercial residential zones, but not in the employment zones. Um, so ideally you have a, an entrance to your building that's inviting to the public walking in the public space, um, that they can see that there is something going on in that building and it's not just a plain bank wall. It doesn't back up to the public realm. Whatever that public, whatever that street and frontage you've decided is the um, the frontage for your building. Um, then there's also the build to area. So there are build to area requirements within the the CR zones and not the employment zones. And again, the build to area starts to get at. We have a lot of information in the plan, recommendations in the plan about starting to move the building closer to um, Connecticut Avenue, starting to build. Um, you know, some a, a street presence um, on Connecticut Avenue um, instead of pushing the, the buildings all the way back um, to the west side of the um, of those properties. Um, and that is required within the commercial residential zones, but not in the the employment zones. Um, so it, it what that is, is that a percentage of your building has to be within the build to area. So you actually have to place your building closer to your frontage. And then finally, um, in the optional method, we looked at, you know, if you do reach a certain density, if you do reach a certain FAR, are you going to have to trigger, is it going to trigger the requirement for public benefits and optional method? In CRN, there is no optional method, as well as in NR and GR. Um, but in the, the CRT zone, there is, if you do reach a certain threshold, it would, um, you would be required to develop under optional method. Um, and this, there is actual um, optional method in the EUF zone as well. So these are um, all of the de development standards that we, obviously we took into the wide range, but these are the ones that we wanted to highlight that we felt that got at when we looked at what seemed to match with the goals for this site. Um, one, we wanted to make sure that the zone was flexible enough to be able to shift with the market. Um, that's why we're in the situation, well, many, much of the reason why we're in the situation today, because we have a lot of single-use zones out there that sort of limit what you can do. And if these plans are to be applicable for 20 years, you want to be able to have some flexibility to move with the market. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that there was a zone that responded to some changes and really sort of looked at how we can start to transition the area to improve the public realm, improve the pedestrian experience, um, and still maintain compatibility with the surrounding neighborhoods, the existing businesses, and really um, start looking at how you can also transform the area over time. And we feel that the CRT zone is the most appropriate zone to accomplish that. Um, particularly on the nor northern side of Aspen Hill Road where you have such, I mean, it's a pretty significant um, area within um, the Aspen Hill Commercial Corridor. Um, what we also wanted to do is there are all these numbers, there are all these percentages, there are all these requirements that are out there, but how, what does that actually look like graphically? 
and we can say that it meets the standards and we can say that you can develop under this, but we also wanted to graphically show how the, the zoning requirements could work out um, on before the site. You, before you do that, mm -hmm. I think, uh, at least speaking for myself, I could use a little break. Okay. So if, that, if you're at the yes. point where you're about to go into these graphics, I think that would be a yep. good time. Great. Just like a couple minutes. Okay.
Um, well, before we go any further, does anybody have anything they want to say about what we've discussed so far? No, I think it's been good, though. Okay. What I wanted to do is sort of explain how I'd like to uh, organize the rest of this work session and what we do in the next work session. Because uh, a couple things have happened that are a little bit uh, unusual as far as just getting this done in the, in the typical process. One is that uh, Commissioner Dreyfus isn't here and uh, we have a new planning board member that's been appointed. Obviously, if the new board member wants to participate, she has to uh, see the record and uh, you know understand what's going on. So I think she's actually been here to was here I think at the public hearing and has 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 you know been uh, if not participating observing the process. So it shouldn't take long to get her up to speed. But as to her and to Mr. Dreyfus, uh, I want them to be able to watch this video that's created from this work session particularly on the topics that you're about to cover mm -hmm. about what would be appropriate or feasible for this particular site and what zoning recommendations, development standards, et cetera, might be uh, appropriate. So we don't have to do that all over again when they're here for the second work session. Uh, the other thing that's gone on is that um, one of the major property owners in this uh, plan area has made a new uh, proposal for what they'd like to see recommended for their property. So, and they're here today. The public obviously hasn't had a chance to uh, think about that or even necessarily to, might not even be aware that it's happened or seen it. So I'm gonna, after your, this, our staff's done making their presentation, I'm gonna invite them up to talk for hopefully no more than 15 minutes so they can explain what it is that they're proposing and the uh, pros and cons of that. The public should uh, be able to watch that. I hope the staff can maybe, if we've got an email list that's specific for this plan, maybe we could blast something out to let people know that you know there's video of this available and that people should, should just be aware of that since it wasn't uh, presented at the public hearing. So if they want to react to that and send us correspondence or attend the second work session to have the, you know say their piece on it, that that's... Uh, that they're, they know what's going on and they have that um, opportunity. Okay? So whenever you're ready to go. Oh, and we, I just, before we get back into development standards in the zone, um, I believe we had some discussion about one of the, the mobility require, or recommendations um, while we were on break and we just wanted to brief you on that. Um, a few minutes ago, the board had directed us not to add any, any information regarding the LATR guidelines. Um, we were actually wondering if we should remove the TPAR section because that may also change. Um, I, I believe we, we stated in the staff draft that no TPAR payment would be necessary. Um, this, this area has adequate capacity, but that may or may not be the case moving forward. Yeah, that just seems like uh, just should be standard practice yeah. not, to, not to say things about what the traffic conditions will or won't be at some point in the future. You, you know, if you feel it's necessary or helpful, you could mention in passing that based on the current conditions that, you know, such and such a condition is uh, true today. But I, I don't know if you even want to get into that. Yeah. So staff will um, recommend removing that section if that's yeah. amenable to the board. 
Yep. It's a section on page 25 of the plan, so we'll take that out. Okay, so getting back to the development standards um, comparison and the use standards comparison, um, what that led to us looking at was how this actually graphically gets represented. Um, there are multiple options, many, many different variations of how this could get representative. This was just part of, for our analysis, for our internal analysis to look at, you know, making sure that generally um, this was this was viable on the site. Um, we represented the zoning right, um, requirements graphically, and Luis will talk a little bit about um, what you see on this slide. Um, for the record, Luis Estrada, Urban Designer Area Two. Um, we actually have um, put together a number of illustratives throughout the process, and uh, naturally, you can go to the next slide for one second. Um, the uh, the uh, the sketch on the upper um, left-hand corner is a sketch that we put together early in the process, and we shared it with the community in one of the public meetings that we had with them. Um, for um, um, from the very beginning, we have making a number of assumptions about how the uses could possibly mix in 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 the in, in, in the planning area, and we. We always assume that the more intense um, um, uses, potential um, mixed uses or potential larger retail components would be closer to Connecticut Avenue, leaving the rest of those properties uh, to, to be um, um, articulated as transitions into single-family residential. Um, um, as part of the uh, uh, the public hearing and following on Commissioner Dreyfus's comments, um, um, what we uh, are illustrating um, in, in the other three alternatives, and you can go back to the other slide, um, it's, it's coming out of the concern that if, if some of these properties chose not to develop to the full extent allowed by the zone, um, the alternatives that certain property owners might consider uh, on a nearer term could be uh, preempted by the requirements on the zone. And what we have done is, is to do um, a series of quick studies to analyze um, um, building placement, potential build, building placements, and, and the extent of, 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 of space that is available for surface, surface parking requirements if, if that was an option that they would, they would consider. Um, having said that, I mean, in this diagram, we actually have included information for all the properties within the planning area, just, just for context, and, and we have um, 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 illustrated them all in different ways. Um, um, uh, the, uh, starting with the, with the lower corner, there's, there's a small um, um, house that is used as an office, and, and that is adjacent to a parking lot um, which serves a medical office building that is existing. I mean, we're not seeing anything that, 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 that should happen or, or, or could happen in the near term in that, so we're illustrating it as existing. On both corners of Aspen Hill and, and uh, Road and Connecticut Avenue, we, we think that if, if, the, if the larger area were to develop in a significant way, it would be a good thing for those corners to develop um, um, in a more significant way. Um, both of them are quite different, both, both in terms of size and in, and in terms of, of the density that is being recommended for each one of them, so the for them as, as, as in keeping with that. And the larger property to the north, the former vitro site, the, the question was whether or not 
you'd be able to park in there um, a large retailer and potentially um, certain um, um, inline retail lining up that and provide enough um, parking to meet the zoning requirements at the same time that you follow the setback requirements and the building orientation requirements that are outlined in the CRT zone. And, and for the diagrams that we have put together, we have taken those as givens. We have actually um, assumed that uh, regardless of the configuration of the building that we're looking in our property, they will have to meet that requirement. We have shown all the diagrams is that. Uh, we have illustrated a 15-foot maximum setback from Connecticut Avenue, and that's sort of middle of the road. I mean, there, there are ranges in the zone from um, I think that the maximum in this case would be 30 feet for a certain type of residential use. For a general retail use, it probably would be around 20 feet. I mean, this is kind of middle of, of, of the road in that. And, and um, we have also assumed because of the priorities of this, the, our plans are usually to encourage pedestrian usage, usage and reduce reliability on cars and all that, that, that the minimum parking requirement is what we're illustrating in here, which is 3.5 cars per 1,000 square feet of retail uses. Um, and what we found is that um, if the building were to be placed closer to Connecticut Avenue, reserving um, the western part of the property for, for surface parking uses that perhaps in the future could become um, a different kind of development that they could fit. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the gist of this exercise. Now, um, in order to consider this as something that is a stepping stone for future development, then that would mean that measures would have to be taken in an early stage of development to ensure that when that parking is removed and used for other uses, that that parking is still available for, for, um, for the retail uses that is, is in the ground right now. And that's, that's something that would have to be considered by property owners when if and when they choose to follow an option like this. Um, and uh, you go to the next one. And then these Well, one way or the other, if you, um, that doesn't af where the where the building has to be placed it doesn't affect, in principle, the available space for parking, right? No, it doesn't. I mean, if it's in the middle of the site, there's still the whatever remains is what it's available to have surface parking. Absolutely, but but we're moving into the front because that's that's the requirement of of the zone that is in question, and and we just wanted to be able to show that that if if the issue is uh, meeting a parking requirement on the surface that you could meet it. I mean, there's there's still the the other issue about the frontage and whether or not that's that's appropriate for the type of use that we're talking about. But um, but we just wanted to stick close to the requirements in the zone. And if you go to the next one, go. And then what we did in here, and so the three diagrams on, on, on the right is what we explored were three different configurations of retail uses based on, on, on the general sizes that, that we have been um, getting from our, our research folks. Um, we, we, uh, we had a larger retail component in here uh, with no inline retail. We had um, a smaller retail component with some inline retail surrounded it, and then, and then we did one with, with around a 75,000 square foot um, retail, which would be sort of like a grocery store type thing, so that we could test different sizes of, of, of possible um, um, retail elements and how could they hit the ground if they wanted to meet all these requirements um, that are aligned by the zone. Um, through this graphic, I did want to point out um, when we, I, I forgot to mention, we were talk, going through the development standards and talking about 
parking and parking ratios um, and placement. Um, it wasn't just the placement that we were considering um, when we were looking at the zone. It was also what the parking requirements would be by the zone. Um, and in the CRT zone, there are actually minimums and maximums. Mm -hmm. So there are a lower amount of parking spaces that are required in the CRT zone, and it also does kick in a maximum, whereas in the employment zones, the NR, the GR, the EOF, um, you just have a minimum, and there is no maximum. So if we're trying to move this into a more pedestrian-oriented environment, um, less auto-dominated environment as we move forward, um, and we potentially have some additional mass transit options um, in the future, we wanted to look at zones that would require less parking in the area, um, and then also, you know, less parking and less spaces and not over-parking an area limits some of the, the traffic in and out of different sites as well. And then just to finish, you know, the, um, um, the illustrations that I have on the right uh, are basically illustrations that we gather to, to show the kind of development that we think can be achieved in the area if the standards on the zone are applied the way we're considering in their sketches. Um, at this point, um, I understand what you were saying as far as waiting for the other commissioners, and um, but at this point we were going to recommend a discussion about affirming any zone within the plan, um, further discussion about some of the other zones that have been brought up through the public hearing process. Um, we did receive a copy of the, um, the Vitro property owner representative's um, request for an amended um, zone, the NR zone. We just received that a day ago. So um, at this time, I guess we, um, what we were going to ask is some, um, some more direction on the zone and how you wanted to proceed with that. And I'm not sure if that's still the same um, direction that you want to go in. Well, I, I mean, it seems to me like it would be helpful to hear this uh, proper owner talk about why they can or can't do what you're recommending and why okay. their proposed uh, alternative is uh, in their view, more desirable. Um, if you think it's helpful, we could talk about this more general. It, obviously, this is not just the staff versus this property owner, but it's, uh, you know, we got comments to the effect that we should do nothing. Um, so, and some other permutations. So maybe uh, at a, we could at least narrow the focus if we have consensus on some of that uh, general, you know, do something different versus do do very little or, or nothing idea if you want to uh, weigh in Amy I am at this point in 100% alignment with the staff recommendations and hearing again the same positions would be helpful for the record if you want to and for others who still want to argue the point okay but Mary uh, I am of the same opinion yeah, well, I guess uh, if I could take the liberty of elaborating, I, I, I agree that uh, at least at the top level question of, you know, why are we doing this and, and uh, you know, why not uh, insist on another office use, th those sort of line of arguments. I mean, it's clear to me from the retail study uh, and, the, and the, the market study that's been done that, uh, and also what has not happened over the past several years at this site that 
uh, re that there is a demand for more retail in this area, that that would that would be uh, that would serve the public. And just that, on that point, case if I can yeah. add too, I I think that the staff is right in what they're recommending at the levels, and that there is in no way an indication that it's intended to create a regional draw, as we had no. discussed. I'm comfortable with the levels and the CRT. Yeah, I think I, I understand what they're trying to say about the scope of the market that this area sh uh, is uh, is appropriate to try to get this area to, to serve uh, and that it's unrealistic to expect that there will be another uh, office use in this uh, in this property in in particular uh, and that this the building that's there now is certainly uh, out uh, outdated um, now I think the to me the the whole just to help date that building 35 years ago. You learned to drive in their parking lot? Is oh, that what no. You're tell me? Uh, that's no. an insult, Casey. Yeah. But 35 years ago, when I was a wee one, I okay. lived right there off of Georgia <laughs> Avenue, and it was there in its current condition. So it's, you know, 35 years, and it, it looked outdated then. Okay. Um, well, for, for me, this whole. So if, if it sounds like, every, Mary, you're in agreement with all that? Not going to comment on uh, when Amy learned to drive? Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. Okay. I think you my, mis my mistake. Um, so it, it appears that the question in front of us is, you know, the, the jugular vein is what is feasible to uh, construct on this site in the near term? What will the market support? What will the site itself uh, accommodate? And uh, so with that, I think that frames the discussion for the um, for the. Uh, largest property owner in this plan area. So I'd ask the Mr. Lee and his representatives to come forward. Maybe they could describe what they uh, their new uh, proposal would entail. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, members of the board. Uh, Bill Commoners with Lurch, Early and Brewer. Uh, with me uh, to my right, Doug Wren of Rogers Consulting, next to Doug, uh, Cindy Barr of our office, and next to her, Bruce Lee of the Lee Development Group. Uh, we certainly appreciate the unexpected opportunity to make this presentation uh, to you today. Um, Mr. Wren is going to run through our drawings uh, that represent the analysis that we've been doing in trying to wrestle with this same conundrum of what's the right zone and is there one that fits everything or are there multiple zones that we should look at based upon the time frame. Um, and uh, before he does that, just let me say we understand the, the goal of the long-term opportunity here, but we're not there yet. And so um, we have tried to look at the differential between what's the long-term and what's the short-term, and how do you get both of them to be successful? Um, we feel there are two different types of design that you would look at for that, uh, both in terms of uses and form, and that the CRT zone, uh, once we began to look at it, is designed for a more urban character of uses and form that does not yet exist today uh, in Aspen Hill. And how to deal with those two needs that are, that are very different 
structures and, and oftentimes in, in conflict is what we've been, when, been wrestling with and it was the genesis for our recommendation of a, at the time GR, now perhaps NR, but a retail type zone immediately because that is what the market tells us is, there, is, is feasible immediately uh, with the recommendation and the plan of the CRT as a floating zone later when the conditions are appropriate for that. And uh, again, as we said at the hearing, that's, that's something that has been done in the past, but we are trying to look at what is realistic in order to make something happen today um, with the, the form and the use types. Um, we haven't obviously looked in detail at the drawings that the staff presented. Um, we appreciate the attention that they have put into trying to deal with this issue and, and their conversations with us about it. We're not sure if they've gotten into all the details that we've tried to address, both the, the parking needs, not necessarily the parking requirements, uh, how to deal with stormwater management, the realistic nature or unrealistic nature of the retail spaces for tenants uh, in terms of angled buildings and elongated buildings and such. Um, but um, um, we, ha we obviously haven't looked at theirs. Um, let us run through yours and we'll tell you why we've done what we've, what we've done. And again, this is a preliminary analysis trying to see what makes sense, can it be done? And it's the reason that we came up with the conclusion that you could not do this feasibly in the CRT to achieve the short-term goal and gave us an opportunity to look at that for the long term. Doug? Sure. Uh, for the record, I'm Doug Rand with Rogers. Uh, we had the opportunity to go through this and, uh, again, test the market and test the site for what we think might be um, realistic um, development of this site. We also went through the zoning ordinance uh, and very literally read every word of the CRT zone and the, uh, the NR and GR zones. Um, we think that's very important and, uh, and has a big impact on, on, the, on what we came up with. And I'll try to show you that if I can. Okay, what you see is the, uh, the first exhibit we prepared. And what we did was this is um, a large format retail. We used an actual footprint from a potential tenant. Um, on the bottom is uh, tested under the CRT zone. And and we are certainly uh, understanding the idea of getting a building wall established up on Connecticut Avenue. Um, and we feel we can go a long way towards achieving that. Um, but a couple things about the CRT zone uh, gave us pause. Um, first of all, as was pointed out by your staff, entrances are required um, facing open space or a street. They're actually required at, a, um, at every 100 feet maximum. So what we would think from that is that if a building was placed as shown um, in the graphic at the bottom, that in the small uh, triangles indicate where those entrances would be required as you would move around the building, where there's open space or the building faces on to a, to a street. Um, in addition, to, put, to meet the build to 70% uh, requirement along Connecticut Avenue, we'd have to add to the footprint of this building. Um, as shown, there'd be an additional space. Um, and it would be somewhat irregular in its shape. Um, that concerns us in the marketplace in terms of a tenant uh, coming up with a merchandising plan for that and just the additional um, operational cost to utilize that space if it's, if it's required. Um, um, 
The other thing about it is that there really isn't flexibility to site that building on Connecticut Avenue. Um, and it, again, we just feel that there isn't the flexibility that would um, that the marketplace would support. So um, another item in this, the CRT requires 40% transparency, and that essentially means glass on the uh, facades of these buildings. Um, and that would, again, we think be a, a detriment to the marketability of it. Uh, and as was pointed out, the build two area is it's a maximum of 20 feet. So that we would have to hold that line. The other thing I'd point out, we felt the service located at um, the, the top of where the building is is a better location because it would minimize conflicts within the site between trucks and pedestrians and, uh, and people arriving by automobile. And there's, um, at the bottom of our site where it's on Aspen Hill Road, that's significantly lower. There's a, quite a grade there um, that must be taken into account. We feel that an open space in that location would accommodate that, could provide for an amenity, could provide for some stormwater management, and would be a, a desirable location for that to occur. So then above, you can see if, if under a GR in our approach, um, we can, we, in our mind, essentially provide for the same relationship of building and to the street and parking and is, is shown in the, in our, in the CRT um, layout. But it doesn't have the uh, requirements for building entrances every 100 feet. Um, it provides for, we think, something that the marketplace could support. It would create some open space. Um, we recognize that there's not a lot of um, permeable surface within this, and if we could introduce open space, we think that would be a valuable thing to do. And again, we're talking in the near term. Long term, certainly, mixed use, higher density, we understand that is the goal of the plan. We support that. But in the near term, we think something like that makes a lot of sense. Um, as a combined um, retail use, this would be a when we go through the conditional use process, um, and we think the zoning, the words in the zoning ordinance um, would be very challenging for us to um, accept and get through that process. So it concerns us a great deal. We think what we show under the NR or GR accomplishes many of the same things, but without those constraints. Um, Wait, do I understand correctly that I'm just the whole orange area is the building footprint, or am I not reading that correctly? In the, in the yeah. lower drawing, yes, that's correct. And, but in the, although, because oh, okay, I see. So you're saying in the lower drawing to get the whole building to the street without basically turning it on its axis, then it's going to be irregularly shaped. That's the point you're trying to make there. Correct. Okay. Right. Right. And, you, so and, and, you, and you'd, have, you'd have to move the building out that way in order to accommodate the requirements of, the, of having X percent in the Build 2 area because the Build 2 area is not only along Connecticut Avenue, it's also along Aspen Hill Road, and we're not showing a building along Aspen Hill Road in this configuration. All right. Okay. I understand. So you've got, you got to make up for it. So then we went through a similar exercise thinking, well, what if we're not in a one-building, big-box type of format? What if it is a grocery or some smaller anchor with some additional retail? 
And in, again, in trying to address the, what we think the market would support, um, as well as how the site would accept this and make some sense of it, you can see the layouts are very similar, but again, we run into constraints under the CRT zone that would challenge this type of development. Um, again, we have the entrances that are required every 100 feet. We have the parking that's supposed to be uh, to the rear of the, of the buildings. Um, so the two additional buildings we show, um, smaller ones would have to be removed under this approach. They essentially would only other location, we'd have to start with a building down on Aspen Hill Road. And again, I think in the, as a near-term solution under a GRNR zone, we could essentially provide this type of retail center um, that, again, we think provides for some pedestrian improvements and connections and uh, some amenity areas that would be, um, you know, a very, very positive thing for Aspen Hill. While Mr. Wren is getting the next the next slide, I just want to make a comment on this on this diagram. The reason that this is done this way, as opposed to with one anchor store and a bunch of much smaller stores, is as I think you heard at the public hearing, the owner indicate that first of all they didn't feel there was a market for more of the smaller stores in the area, um, but particularly with regard to their existing center across Connecticut Avenue, the others that are in the area and the concerns of those business owners about having more smaller stores, um, that was not what any of them uh, wanted. And there didn't seem to be, from your staff's market analysis, that much market demand for more of the smaller stores. There was a, more of a market for uh, grocery and general merchandise categories, not another uh, uh, barbershop, nail salon, um, whatever, uh, that we already have in those other existing shopping centers. So we tried to look at, the, in this scenario, in the multi-building, of a grocery store size building plus other larger stores, uh, you know, 10,000, 20,000 square feet, and how you'd accommodate that. You. When, you, when you talk about other larger stores, are you talking about things that might want to locate there because of the area, because of the draw, restaurant-type things? What are, you, what are you really thinking? Well, because obviously this is the you know part of the whole right. purpose for redoing the plan is to make it something that functions, not just to put a grocery sure. store on the, and, on the and, corner. And one and one one thing I uh, before Bruce answers the question, let me tell you one of the things I was thinking about is we were having the discussion earlier about regional versus neighborhood versus who comes to shop where. You know, a, a regional draw or is uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer to me. I mean, I think people. People look for choices in shopping. Um, if I want to go to the best deli in the area, I go where that deli is. I don't necessarily go to the one that's closest to me because it's not as good. Um, if, if Are you a saying particular, this wouldn't be able to draw a best deli type person? No, it might. Nice it might. It might. But but if you but if you but if you put the best deli in the Montgomery County in here, then somebody from Potomac is going to come here as well as somebody from Aspen Hill. So. so is that a regional draw? No. Well, to me, yeah, because anybody in the region who wants a we, good deli didn't is going to come here. We hear anyone on this board being hung up with that terminology. And no, so I, I well I debunk it. So. Okay, well, that's... So that. with that in mind, just on, as to the question, what types of people would you be trying to encourage? Because a grocery store isn't going to activate the area other than sending people there with another choice, which I think is a good thing, but it's not really going to do anything to change the character of that other than changing out the building and the 
places. So what would you try to attract and why? Of all the, uh, the meetings that we've had, uh, which have been very many with the community, the, the number one feedback is we want a second grocery store back in, in Aspen Hill. The other is, wow, we need more restaurants. We get calls for anywhere from 7,500 to 12,000 square feet all the time. We don't have it. Uh, as far as duplicating other uses, the nail salons and the smaller stores and the hair salons, we don't need five more of those in Aspen Hill. Uh, we need to really service the community, and those are the two number one uh, complaints. Grocery store, restaurants. Uh, we also get calls from other larger type tenants who are looking for 15,000 square feet. That would be your pet codes, your other type of stores. There's a lot of options that are out there. And uh, once I, mean, I just wasn't zoned, getting that look, sense, that. Doug, that you were saying, like, you really would try to attract yeah. a restaurant or something that would be community serving. I mean, Petco's are good and things like that, too, but it's, you know, you, kind of, you bring your pet in and you go out. But Yes. Having and something that's dining and activating, and, and mm -hmm. then I would think that would make you reconsider whether or not uh, CRT, because you want more glass front to activate those kinds of things, I would think. Right. We want to create some sense of place, even in the near term. Um, and that's why these buildings are located under our um, NR or GR alternative in a way that creates that cluster and that connection that uh, you could you know, easily walk and interact with those. The ultimate mix and configuration of these, um, we're not sure of. We really just wanted to test the zone at this time. And while, again, through, I think, design guidelines in the, in the plan that can direct us um, and the requirement for a site plan, I think we'll get to a form that we all will collectively say is uh, the appropriate form. Um, and, and if I could just add, I mean, the challenge for us is obviously it, it needs to be marketable. And many of the national retailers who have good market product, uh, they have their criteria. And their criteria is that we need frontage, we need parking in the front, uh, we don't want the front to the back. You, you can see where I'm going with that. And it becomes very complicated. Coles uh, is a, a great role model. Uh, which we just put in. It's the smallest coals in the United States. They've gone down from a model of 80,000 square feet to 53,000 square feet. We could just fit them in and, and, and make it work. Uh, but the, the building, we had the infrastructure to work with, we had the zoning to work with, we had the parking to work with. It was marketable. And, and that's, that's the number one criteria. If we're, if we're designing things that just simply are not marketable, what have we really accomplished? So we, we, we looked at these to try to look at what kind of design criteria would be important for this that would, that would fit where we thought the, the board and the area wanted to try to go, but that would also fit this. So, for example, unlike saying for the CRT zone, you can't have any parking in front of any building line. We said that makes sense along Connecticut Avenue because we want to push the building up there. But if you, if you said you shouldn't have parking between the building face building frontage and Connecticut Avenue, that's one thing. But then you don't have to apply that down to Aspen Hill Road. In looking at this plan, we thought that the retailers should be connected in some fashion to make it easy for pedestrians to, to link, not having one on one end of a parking lot, one on the other end. So as Commissioner, as uh, Chair Anderson said, he drives from one end to the other. We want people to be able to walk conveniently for that in a way. Um, but that, that, that's wherever they're placed and however they can be placed. Um, Without, without pushing them in one direction or other. You want to push them together, not necessarily push them all to the street because that separates them. And, and to that point, um, in terms of the CRT, 
Um, Amy, you mentioned the, you know, one, the transparency. Um, and the, the transparency and the requirement that the doors be located every 100 feet, those are, you know, in our estimation and evaluation, those are really the next level of a form, really prescriptive in terms of a form of a building and don't give it enough flexibility. That, that isn't to say that there can't be design guidelines, and we've suggested some, that say that the building should be oriented towards Connecticut. There should not be parking between the building face and the street, that there needs to be articulation of the building, that there needs to be some transparency. It's not to say that those can't be in elements in the plan. It's just that the CRT is very prescriptive in that. And in fact, because of those build two areas, the second plan that Doug shows, you wouldn't be able to do that because the second building would have to be down at Aspen Hill Road. You would have to, ha they would be disconnected and it would have to be in the build to area at Aspen Hill Road. So we, we think that the form that results because the whole area and because the corner of the, of the area, which is a, is a problem that really hasn't been addressed here, we don't at this juncture have that corner. And the development down along Aspen Hill Road really needs that corner. And that we've, we is a more long-term prospect. And that's a good segue, because what you see now, we wanted to test these for the long-term as well, to make sure what we propose or would like to do now doesn't hinder or preclude a long-term uh, achievement of the vision and the plan. And so this, in our mind, satisfies that by showing that with a, a large department store prototype, um, long-term, you would allow to infill the rest of the site, including the corner, when that happens, under a CRT uh, zone. And, and, and again, create the kind of, uh, or achieve the kind of vision that's, that's intended. And we did the same thing for this grocery store type format in the buildings. And again, we think that we can create um, connections that begin to mimic the Connecticut Avenue, Aspen Hill Road connection within the site, provide for some green space, provide for amenities, and again, achieve the long-term vision um, with the short-term near-term solution that we had presented before. So I'll continue on these. Um, and this is one thing we just wanted, we did look at, you know, what is really the impact potentially. Now this admittedly would be the rear of a store on Connecticut Avenue, but with some amenity space without having to pull up to that no build, I mean that build to line, could we create something that would in the near term begin to signal to the community this is an area for pedestrians and foreshadow the kind of character that we all want long term in Aspen Hill. So the one below shows the CRT implementation of that. The top one would be, again, with more flexibility under NRGR zone, what could be achieved. And then, yeah, there's... Uh, One more. Uh, there it is. Okay. And uh, the 
last uh, piece of uh, sort of the puzzle here, which um, we think is important, is kind of the historical context. I think in one of their very early presentations, the staff uh, went through the history of the, this area and showed that prior to this, the vitro, the MBA vitro property being in the, put in the CO zone in the 1994 master plan, it was actually in the C1 zone. And um, if you'll notice in the, the, through the rewrite and the remapping, uh, there are a number of other C1 properties in this area, and those will all be put in the NR zone. And we thought that that, that was interesting because, um, as Bruce has said publicly many times, uh, you know, he's, he's very sorry that he ever let it be put in the CO zone and um, would have certainly wanted a more flexible zone or, uh, and certainly one that allowed commercial because this is primarily a commercial area and certainly the market study and everything you've heard um, uh, and you've acknowledged through it with your experiences in the area um, point to that being the appropriate use. So we think that, there, uh, that that is relevant to the discussion that you know, NR may be appropriate with design guidelines to move it to where you want to see and to address, uh, you know, we know the issues in terms of the moving the building towards Connecticut and the parking and other issues. Okay, great. Um, if I could ask you all to step back and I'd like to give the staff if they've had a, if they have any reaction to that immediately that to give you a chance to do that. If not, uh, that's okay, but I think we are trying to just uh, set the table for the next uh, work session. And uh, by the way, the reason I'm doing this is mostly for the benefit of the public who can't be here and hasn't seen any of this before. So I want, uh, so if the staff could at least briefly address some of the issues that you think are raised by this, I think that would be helpful to people who may be watching this or want to watch it later and before we meet again. Um, so to address, and I guess if anyone, anyone from staff wants to jump in to address any of um, any of the issues that were brought up, um, please feel free. Um, but as you can see, this isn't the first time that we've looked at NR or considered NR for the area. It's an alternative zone that we had looked at from the very beginning and weighed the pros and cons of the different zones. Um, the, the matrix that we sent out to you obviously went out before we even um, got this request. So we've been looking at these, these zones for quite a while um, when formulating our recommendation. Um, and I guess one of the points that I wanted to touch upon is that you could do some of these things in NR and GR, um, but what we were concerned about is that because they're not requirements within the zone, and you would be relying on the guidelines to get that type of development that we say that we want in this plan, um, that was 
you know, that was a challenge for us. That was a con for us that we have these zones um, now available for use in areas that we want to see some transfer transformation. Um, they do allow the flexibility of uses. Um, you know, as even the or the the property owner had said, um, you know. They're kind of in this bind because of this single-use zone that was placed upon their property, and what we we tried to respond to that with the mixing, which is a zone that allows a multitude of different uses. Um, we have to look at this plan, and yes, what we how we want to reactivate and redevelop and see this area um, in the short term. But we also have to think about this as a plan for the tw for 20 years. Um, so yes, immediately what the market is saying, and we feel that CRT responds to that because it does allow a lot of retail development um, in the short term. But we also have to think about how this area redevelops and evolves in the longer term as well. If this plan stands for 20 years, in 10 years, this area could be in five years. Um, someone could come in tomorrow and be really excited about a mixed-use development at a very um, highly trafficked um, intersection. Um, and we want to make sure that you can do that. You have the flexibility to do that um, moving forward, to, you know, today and tomorrow. And we also want to respond to the concerns about how this area does develop and how the largest property that's available within this minor master plan amendment develops. Um, and the question has come up, you know, when do you begin and where do you begin? Well, we have the opportunity before us now to start and not wait until the next phase. Um, whenever that may be, um, but we have an opportunity to start affecting change in this area um, sooner than later. Um, I think there are a lot of people in the area that wouldn't mind walking to this, you know, to restaurants or a grocery store or, I mean, particularly a lot of people said that they'd like to see some restaurants, and I think from the immediate community, they'd like to walk to that if they could. I think this, some of the, the requirements within the CRT, CRT zone make it more viable that you're going to get a more pedestrian-oriented environment to allow that to happen or to make people feel more comfortable for that to happen. Um, and you do want some destination draws, and I think that's where you do. I mean, all over the county we're seeing that stores and retailers are changing their shape and form. The economy, the market, people's wants, people's needs are changing. Um, and I think people want to see, um, and, I, and I think retailers are noticing in that, and they're responding. Um, we see different forms of, you know, old big boxes all the time. They're transforming. We see different ways of developing grocery stores all the time. Um, one of the things that we have seen, um, one of the points that we did want to address and sort of plant the seed to if we need to discuss further, is that um, the entrance is every 100 feet. So we have gone through this, and we've looked at. Obviously, I think many times when the first, when the or when you first look at the zone, you're thinking that you have multiple users, so you want to have an entrance at least every 100 feet. Well, what happens when you only have a single user, and you only need one primary entrance? Does that mean that you have to put in additional entrances to meet that standard, or is it? only kick in when you have multiple users. So that is a question that we have that we feel that needs to be verified, verified when you start applying this in different contexts, when you actually start applying these standards on the ground. Um, and also there is no definition for entrance. It doesn't necessarily, so 
our understanding is that it doesn't necessarily mean primary entrance. So could a customer entrance apply, um, be applicable? And if you've got a customer entrance and then a primary entrance and start measuring 100 feet from those points. So I think there's some some flexibility in that discussion. And, and I think yeah. May I add in a, a couple of things? I think a Andrea is doing a great job of articulating a lot of the reasons why we are supporting the CRT zone. The one thing I'd like to just note is we're all still learning about these zones. They are new zones. What um, the chart for CRT says is that the entrance spacing, and then it says max next to it, is 100 feet. I don't think that that says entrance spacing minimum. I think that it is put there with the expectation that you're dealing with a property that has multiple users. But I, I don't read this as saying, when, because of those important words, max, entrance spacing max, that there is a minimum saying you must have the spacing every 100 feet. So again, I think as we get into these CRT zones, we're going to be having to sort of learn and interpret and you know, if we find things actually that are, are not clear enough, ultimately maybe make some in revisions and improvements when we go back uh, to look at some of these um, zoning ordinance issues in six months or a year, as we've sort of noted we're going to probably need to do in any case. But the important thing that I also wanted to mention, and I, and I think that, uh, that Andrea did a good job again of touching on this, is that the whole effort of creating the CR zones and of the zoning ordinance in general, the zoning ordinance rewrite in general, was to try to move away from single-use zones. Historically, that is how this whole county developed, with a series of single-use Euclidean zones. And we've always been bumping up against those zones not allowing us to do the kinds of development we want to have in the county. And the goal of the CR zones was to say, let's stop doing this. Let's stop having single-use Euclidean zones everywhere in the county. Let's really look at um, how we can create the most flexible possible zones. The other thing I do want to just note is, you know, we're we're zoning a lot of property through the um, district map amendment to the CR family of zones, whether it's CRT or CR itself. And um, I think that uh, we're going to have to sort of decide, you know, are we committed to this new vision or are we going to basically say, gee, if the market isn't what we think it is, we're going to go back to our, our old regimen of single-use Euclidean zones. You know, in this particular case, again, I think staff's made a couple of very good uh, examples. I would just, you know, offer another, um, you know, if we don't know what's going to go on this site. The owner has said very clearly, 
They don't know what's going to go on this site. But uh, if you had a, a hotel or motel that wanted to come in, that's not permitted under NR. I mean, it's not permitted under limited or uh, conditional use. It's just not permitted at all. Um, while under uh, CRT, um, it is. There's also um, research and development. Again, we don't know that research and development would go in, but if you somehow got someone saying we want to do research and development, it's not permitted at all under NR. It is under the CRT. It's more flexible. I truly believe that if it's design issues we're talking about, that we can figure out working with the applicant, and, and they have been very good at working with us and thinking a lot of these things through, that we can solve the design issues. There's a thousand ways to skin a cat when you come to actually putting together a site plan and actually designing where a building is going to be on a site. And if the, the question is use, then CRT is definitely preferable because it's more flexible. If the question is design, I really believe that we can figure out a way to make it work, depending on what the ultimate use is that goes on the site. So I would just add those comments. Did you want to say something? Um. I just kind of wanted to uh, add a market's perspective. Uh, sorry for the record, Rick Liu again. Um, based on what the applicant has said about uh, retailers' um, sort of requirements, you know, some of them have park, you know, want parking in the front of the store. Um, a lot of these are guidelines. Uh, we all know that, um, in large part, retailers, um, you know, have. They, they, they can change their requirements. It's, uh, it really depends on whether, you know, the, ju the juice is uh, worth the proverbial squeeze. Um, we know that in uh, places that are land-constrained and are amenity-rich, like uh, cities like San Francisco, uh, retailers would jump through hoops um, to change their own requirements in order to get a store built, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, reduced parking or, you know, structured parking or, or all sorts of different issues. Obviously, the economics are different there. Um, whereas uh, where I lived in Georgia for a number of years, there are certain communities where, uh, you know, some of these stores get built uh, even in a location or, you know, with a demographic that's not as strong. Um, and the developer or the retailer, in this case, is able to get anything they want. And not only that, they also needed economic incentives or tax breaks. So. I think part of this is also thinking about, you know, Aspen Hill probably falls in the middle of those two extremes. Where in the middle does it kind of fall? And um, sort of from my perspective, I think CRT is a pretty good compromise. Um, is it perfect? Um, you know, it, it probably isn't. But, you know, we're also trying to balance the objectives of a short term and a long term. And this, like Andrea had alluded to, we're thinking of a 20-year plan. Uh, if this was, you know, a two, three, or five-year, uh, you know, type of plan and, you know, with the uh, promise that we would relook at this in five years hypothetically, uh, you know, it, it could be a slightly different recommendation from my perspective, but because it's a 20-year, um, you know, I, I think it's a pretty good compromise on, you know, where we are and where we want to get to, so. Okay, thank you for that. Um, 
I think for the next work session it would be helpful to, in the staff uh, report that's that uh, is uh, on the website in our packets to maybe address some of these specifics like how much glass and the orientation of the building, spacing of entrances, all the all the sort of specific things that um, the uh, Lee's raised uh, so we can kind of be ready to have a back and forth on whether or not those are and, and legal should probably look at it too to let us know what you think about how how much flexibility would be available under the different possible zones to accommodate uh, issues like the, the entrance spacing and things like that and we um, I was just going to add that, as is our practice, we will also update this matrix to reflect what you decided today, so you will have a record of what you decided, and if you think we got it wrong somehow, let us know. Yeah, and just to be clear, I think what we decided is that, yes, in fact, we agree that some significant uh, amount of retail should be accommodated on, on this site. I, ideally, uh, at least w whether now or in the future to accommodate some uh, greater variety of, of uses and to try to, uh, this plan should establish a pathway to, to encourage those things to, to happen. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Anybody else have anything, parting shots? Yeah, and, and Natalie too. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. And with that, I think we're adjourned. <laughs>